patron. Efegenio Amejeras was in charge of guarding one of the rear access roads, which also came from the region of Pico Verde. Lalo Sardinas and his platoon remained in the Zapato zone, guarding several sawmill roads that extended to the banks of the Peladero. It was an excessive precaution since the enemy would have to march a long time to the Sierra Maestra to reach these roads, and it was not their custom to march through the mountains in columns. Ciro Redondo and his platoon were in charge of defending the access road from Siberia, that is the region between El Uvero and Pino de Agua, and the road chosen for Ciro on the edge of the Sierra Maestra connected two sawmills. Our forces were distributed along the roads that climbed to Giza on a rocky outcrop in the woods to surprise the trucks and concentrate our firepower on their most probable route. The position allowed us to observe the trucks from a great distance. The platoon assigned to the action had the best arms and was reinforced with some of Captain Raul Castro Macarder's people. We spent approximately seven days in ambush without any troops arriving. On the seventh day, when I was at the small command post where food was made for the troops, I was informed that the enemy was approaching. Our forces prepared for battle. In the key position, we placed men under Captain Ignacio Perez's command, whose job was to stop the first truck. Others who were to fire on the other vehicles were along the flanks. Twenty minutes before the battle, a torrential downpour fell, normal in the Sierra Maestra, soaking us to the bone. Meanwhile, the enemy soldiers were advancing, more concerned with the rain than with the possibility of an attack. The compañero charged with opening hostilities fired his Thompson machine gun, but hit no one. The gunfire spread and the soldiers in the first truck, more frightened and surprised than hurt by our attack, leapt onto the road and disappeared behind some boulders. After killing one of our great fighters and the poet of our column, whom we called Crucito, José de la Cruz. The battle developed somewhat strangely. An enemy soldier took refuge under the truck at the bend in the road. A minute or two later, I arrived at the scene. Many of our people were retreating, obeying a false order, a frequent accident in the midst of combat. Archimedes Fonseca was wounded in the hand while retrieving a submachine gun abandoned by its gunner. I had to give orders for everyone to return to their combat posts, and asked Lando Sardinas and Efigenio Amejeres to concentrate their forces with ours. A fighter named Tatin was on the road. As I climbed down, he said to me defiantly, There he is under the truck. Let's go, let's go. Let's see who's a man. I summoned up my courage, deeply offended by his implication that I was reluctant. When we tried to approach the enemy fighter, however, who was firing on us with his machine gun, we had to acknowledge that the price for displaying our manliness was too great. Neither my challenger nor I passed the test. There were five army trucks transporting one company. The squadron led by Antonio Lopez carried out its orders not to allow anyone to pass after the opening of hostilities. Nevertheless, a group of soldiers resisting energetically impeded our advance. Lalo and Efegenio arrived with the reinforcements. They advanced on the trucks and eliminated all resistance. Some of the soldiers fled in disarray down the road. Others fled in the two trucks they had managed to save, abandoning all the other equipment and ammunition. Through Hiberto Gardero, we received information concerning their forces and their plans. This compañero had been taken prisoner during an incursion by our forces into another region, and the enemy had brought him along with the idea that he could poison Fidel by emptying the contents of a vial into Fidel's food. When he heard the shots, Gardero threw himself from the truck like all the soldiers, but instead of fleeing the gunfire, he at once rejoined our ranks. After taking the first truck, we found two dead and one wounded soldier, 
who in his agony was still going through the emotions of battle as he lay dying. One of our fighters finished him off. The combatant responsible for this mindless act of violence had seen his family decimated by Batista's army. I reproached him fiercely for the act, unaware that another wounded soldier, concealed and motionless under some tarpaulins in the truck, could hear me. Emboldened by my words and the apology of the compañero, the enemy soldier made his presence known and begged us not to kill him. He had taken a shot in the leg, and he remained at the side of the road while the battle continued around the other trucks. Every time a fighter passed near him, he would shout, Don't kill me! Don't kill me! Chase said not to kill prisoners! When the battle was over, we transported him to the sawmill and gave him first aid. As for the other trucks, we had inflicted only a few casualties, but a good number of weapons remained in our possession. The outcome of the battle, one Browning machine gun, five Garands, one tripod machine gun and its ammunition. We set about burning the three captured trucks since they were unsalvageable. While we were assembling our troops, some planes passed overhead, but we opened fire on them and they left. Mingolo Pardo had been sent to warn Fidel of the approaching guards, but we decided to send another messenger to tell him the results of our battle. We sent word to Ciro to withdraw from his position since the battle was over. Mango Martinez carried the message. After a few minutes we heard gunfire. A group of our marksmen had discovered a soldier advancing surreptitiously. They shouted to him to halt. When he tried to resist, they fired at him. The man fled, abandoning his gun. They brought us a Springfield as evidence of their triumph. It worried us that there were still dispersed soldiers in the region, but we added the gun to our tally. Two or three days later, Mongo Martinez returned. He told us that some enemy soldiers had taken him by surprise, firing on him with rifles, and that he was forced to flee because he was wounded. His face was literally covered in the powder burns of gunshot wounds. His was the Springfield that our compañeros had seized from the enemy. The result had been that this wounded compañero, believing the soldiers to be very near, had taken a crossroad and got lost in the woods, without letting Ciro Redondo know about our battle or the order to withdraw. The next day, Ciro, who had heard echoes of the battle, sent a messenger to us, and the order was conveyed to him. While the B-26s were flying low over the sawmill in search of victims, we were calmly having our breakfast. The planes finally left, and we, utterly relaxed, were about to leave when we saw on the road from Siberia, the same one Ciro had been watching a few hours earlier, four trucks full of soldiers. We left quietly. This battle had important repercussions as news of it spread throughout Cuba. The enemy toll was three dead and one wounded, in addition to one prisoner, Corporal Alejandro, whom we took with us and who stayed until the end of the war as our cook. Crucito was buried at the site of our battle. Our entire troop was grief-stricken, having lost in him a great compañero and a peasant bard. Crucito used to conduct fierce poetic duels with Calisto Morales, whom he called the old Sierra Buzzard, as opposed to himself, the Nightingale of the Maestra. We left Pino del Agua along various roads with plans to regroup in the Pico Verde region. There we would reorganize ourselves and wait for Compañero Fidel's arrival. Analysis of the battle showed that although it was a political and military victory, our shortcomings were enormous. The surprise factor should have been fully exploited to wipe out the occupants of the first three trucks. Furthermore, after the shooting had started, a false order to retreat had been circulated, leading the men to lose control and fighting spirit. 
a lack of decisiveness was evident in seizing the vehicles, which were defended by a small number of soldiers. Later, we spent the night at the sawmill exposing ourselves unnecessarily, and the final withdrawal was carried out with great disorder. All this proved the imperative necessity of improving combat preparation and discipline among our troops, a task we devoted ourselves to in the days to come. An Unpleasant Episode After the Battle of Pino de Agua, we set about improving the organizational structure of our guerrilla force, strengthened at that point by several of Fidel's units to increase our effectiveness in combat. Lieutenant Lopez, who had distinguished himself at Pina de Agua and his squadron, whose members were all very responsible, were chosen to staff a disciplinary commission. Each task would be surveillance and overseeing established norms of vigilance, general discipline, camp cleaning, and revolutionary morality. But each life was ephemeral, and it was dissolved in tragic circumstances a few days after its creation. We learned that Fidel had completed his tour of the Sonador region after going to Chivirico and was returning through our zone. We decided to march toward Peladero, trying to connect with him. It was on the banks of the Peladero River that this unpleasant incident occurred that provoked the abolition of the disciplinary commission. The commission's work was facing resistance from several compañeros who disliked the idea of establishing disciplinary norms, obliging the commission to take drastic measures. One of the rear guard squadrons played a tasteless practical joke on the members of the commission. According to the jokers, there was a very serious problem requiring the commission to come immediately. It turned out to be manure left to bait the compañeros. Following the incident, various members of the group were arrested. Among them was Humberto Rodriguez, of sad repute due to his penchant for playing executioner whenever we found ourselves faced with the painful duty of executing a delinquent. After the revolution triumphed, Rodriguez, with another rebel soldier as his accomplice, murdered a prisoner. They subsequently escaped La Cabana prison. Two or three compañeros were imprisoned along with Humberto. In the conditions of the guerrilla forces, prison did not mean much, but when the crime was serious enough, the prisoner was deprived of food for a day or two, a punishment that did strike home. Two days after the incident, when the principal participants were still prisoners, News arrived that Fidel was close by, in the region called El Zapato, where I went to welcome and talk with him. We hadn't been together for more than ten minutes when Ramido Valdez arrived with the news that Lalo Sardinas, in an impulsive act of punishment toward an undisciplined compañero, had held his pistol to the man's head as if to shoot him. The gun went off unintentionally, and the compañero was killed on the spot. There were the beginnings of a riot among the troops. I went back to camp immediately and put Lalo under guard. The atmosphere was hostile and combatants were demanding a summary trial and execution. We began to take statements and look for evidence. Opinions were divided. Some men were convinced it was premeditated murder. Others said it was an accident. Independent of these opinions, inflicting corporal punishment on a compañero was forbidden in the guerrilla forces, and this was not Lalo Sardinia's first offense. The situation was difficult. The compañero Lalo Sardinas had always been a very brave fighter, a strict supporter of discipline, a man with great spirit of sacrifice. Those who were fiercely demanding the death penalty were far from the best of the group. The declarations of the witnesses continued until nightfall. Fidel came to the camp and was strongly opposed to the death penalty, 
but he did not judge it prudent to make a decision of this nature without consulting each of the fighters. The next stage of the trial called for Fidel and me to defend the accused. After the many impulsive demands for his death, it was my turn to speak and ask that the problem be examined carefully. I tried to explain that the death of our compañero had to be ascribed to our conditions of a struggle, to the very fact that we were at war, and that in the end it was the dictator Batista who was guilty. My words, however, were not convincing to these hostile audience. It was well into the night. We had lit several pine torches and some candles to continue the discussion. Fidel then spoke for a full hour, explaining why, in his opinion, Lalo Sardinas should not be executed. He enumerated our faults, our lack of discipline, the other errors we committed daily, the weaknesses these caused, and he explained that in the end this reprehensible act had been committed in defense of the concept of discipline and that we should always keep that fact in mind. His voice, as he stood within the woods illuminated by the torches, took on a moving tone, and many of our men changed their minds after hearing their leader's opinion. His enormous powers of persuasion were put to the test that night. Fidel's eloquence, however, could not put an end to all opposition. We concluded that two alternative punishments should be put to the vote. Immediate death by shooting, or demotion and the punishment this would entail. Owing to inflamed passions, we had to suspend proceedings because some were voting twice, and excited arguments were fast distorting the terms of the solution. Once more, the alternatives open to the voters were explained, and everybody was asked to make their choice clear. I was put in charge of tallying the votes in a little notebook. Lalo was there to many among us. We recognized his error, but wanted his life spared, for he was a valuable candidate of the revolution. I recall that Oniria Gutierrez, a young woman who joined our column, then not much older than a girl, asked in an anguished voice if, as a combatant of the column, she could vote. She was permitted to do so, and we began to count the ballots. The result of the strange vote was extremely close. Opinion among the 146 carillas who voted was divided. Seventy-six wanted another type of punishment, and seventy as for the death penalty. Lalo was saved. But that wasn't the end of it. The next day, a group of men opposed to the decision of the majority announced their decision to lead the guerrilla movement. This group included many elements of very poor quality, but there were also some brave men among them. Paradoxically, Lieutenant Antonio Lopez, head of the disciplinary commission, and various members of his squadron were dissatisfied and left the rebel army. These men, who had not respected the majority and who abandoned the struggle, subsequently put themselves at the service of the enemy, and it was as traitors that they returned to fight on our soil. A revolutionary war was already beginning to acquire new characteristics. The consciousness of the leaders and the combatants was growing. We were beginning to feel in our flesh and blood the need for an agrarian reform and for profound, essential changes in the social structure that were vital to cleanse the country. But this deepening consciousness among the best and the majority of our fighters provoked clashes with those elements who had come to the struggle out of nothing but a hunger for adventure, or in the hope of winning not only glory, but economic advantage. Some other malcontents also withdrew. One that comes to mind, Roberto, subsequently spun out a long tale full of lies, and to his ridicule, Conte Aguero published it in Bohemia. Lalo Sardinas was demoted and sentenced to win his rehabilitation by fighting as a simple soldier in a small platoon. 
one of a lieutenant, Joaquin de la Rosa, Lalo's uncle, decided to accompany him. As a replacement for Captain Sardinas, Fidel gave me one of his best fighters, Camilo Sinfuegos, who became a captain in our column's forward guard. We had to set out immediately to neutralize a group of bandits who, utilizing the name of a revolution, were committing crimes in both the region where we had begun our struggle and in Caracas and El Lomón. Camilo's first mission in our column was to advance rapidly and take all those elements prisoner, whom we would then put on trial. The Struggle Against Banditry Conditions in the Sierra Maestra were now permitting us to live freely across a vast territory. The army hardly ever occupied any of it, and in many places they had never bothered even to set foot. But we had not organized a system of government strong enough to impede the groups of men who, under the pretext of revolutionary activity, dedicated themselves to looting, banditry, and a host of other offenses. Political conditions in the Sierra Maestra were also still quite precarious. The political development of its inhabitants was still superficial, and the presence of a threatening enemy army made it difficult for us to overcome these weaknesses. Once again, the enemy was closing in. The least resolute among the people were already looking for a way to save themselves from the dreaded invasion of Batista's assassins. Sanchez Mosquera was camped in the village of Minas de Boisito, and a new invasion was becoming evident. As for us, during those days of October 1957, we were in the valley of El Ombrito, laying the groundwork for a liberated territory and creating the first rudiments of industrial activity seen in the Sierra Maestra, a bakery. In the same region was an encampment serving as a halfway house for the guerrilla forces. Groups of young people wanting to join us were placed under the authority of trusted peasants. The leader of the group, Aristidio, had belonged to our column until a few days before the Battle of El Uverro, but the battle took place without him because he had fallen and fractured a rib. He later showed little interest to continue fighting as a guerrilla. Aristidio was a typical example of a peasant who joined the ranks of the revolution without having any clear understanding of its significance. In his own analysis of the situation, he found there were more advantages in waiting to see which way the wind would blow. He sold his revolver and began to repeat to anyone who would listen that he was not crazy enough to allow himself to be quietly caught at home after the guerrillas left and he was going to make contact with the army. These were difficult moments for the revolution. As head of the region, I called for a very summary investigation and the peasant Aristidio was executed. Today, we might ask ourselves whether he was really guilty enough to deserve death, and if it might not have been possible to save that life for the constructive phase of the revolution. War is difficult and harsh, and when the aggression of the enemy is on the rise, it is not possible to tolerate even the suspicion of treason. Months earlier, when the guerrilla movement was much weaker, it might have been possible to save his life, or months later, when we were far stronger. But Aristidio had the bad luck that his weakness as a revolutionary combatant coincided precisely with a point at which we were strong enough to drastically punish an act like this, but not strong enough to sanction him in another way, since we had no jail or any other type of confinement. Leaving the region for a time, our forces set out toward Los Cocos along the Magdalena River. We were to join with Fidel there and capture a gang that under the command of Chino Chang was ravaging the Caracas region. Camilo, who had gone ahead with the forward guard, had already taken a number of prisoners before we arrived, 
and we stayed there about ten days. It was there in a peasant hut that Chino Chang was tried and condemned to death. He was the leader of a gang that had murdered some peasants and tortured others, usurping the name and possessions of the revolution while sowing terror in the district. Together with Chang, a peasant was condemned to death who had raped an adolescent girl, at the same time boasting of his authority as a messenger for the rebel army. We also put on trial a good number of the gang, consisting of youths from the cities and peasants seduced by the prospect of a carefree life without having to submit to any rules. Most were acquitted, but with three of them we decided to stage a symbolic lesson. First, we executed Chang and the peasant guilty of rape. Later, we carried out the symbolic execution of the three boys of the gang who had been most involved in Chang's outrages, but whom Fidel felt should be given a chance. The three were blindfolded and subject to the distress of a simulated firing squad. After shots were fired into the air, one of them, in a spontaneous demonstration of joy, gave me a noisy kiss as if I were his father. The CIA agent, Andrew St. George, witnessed these events. His reportage, published in Luke magazine, won a prize in the United States for the most sensational story of the year. In retrospect, this method might seem barbaric. At the time, however, no other form of punishment for those men was possible. All three joined the rebel army. I later heard reports of the brilliant performance of two of them. The third spent a long time in my column. Two or three days later, we captured another group. Their execution was especially painful. Among them was a peasant named Dionisio and his brother-in-law Juan Lebrigio, two among the very first to aid our guerrilla troop. Dionisio, who had helped unmask the traitor Utimio Guerra and who had assisted us in one of the most difficult moments of our revolution, had later grossly abused our confidence, as had his brother-in-law. They had appropriated for their own use all the provisions sent to us by the urban organizations and had established several camps to slaughter the cattle arbitrarily. Once on this path, they descended as far as committing murder. At that time in the Sierra Maestra, a man's wealth was measured by the number of women he had. Dionisio, taking himself for a potentate, had, thanks to the powers conferred on him by the revolution, taken over three houses, and in each of them he kept a woman and an abundant supply of food. In the course of his trial, Fidel reproached him for his treachery and his immorality in maintaining three women on the people's money. But Dionisio maintained, with peasant ingenuousness, that it was not three, but two, since one of them was already his, which was true. Together with them, we also executed two spies sent by Mas Ferrer, who had been caught red-handed and confessed as well as a boy named Echeverria, who had been assigned to special missions in the movement, but began to organize armed attacks in guerrilla territory. The last of the executed was a colorful character called Al Maestro, who was my sole companion during some difficult hours when I had wandered through these mountains sick. He soon left the guerrillas, using some illness as a pretext, and dedicated himself to an immoral life. His exploits culminated in an attempt to pass himself off as me, and in the guise of a doctor attempted to rape a young peasant girl who sought medical treatment from him. They all died proclaiming their commitment to the revolution, except for Masferro's two spies. With men like these, the revolution was being made. Rebels at the beginning against any injustice, they soon became accustomed to satisfying their own needs, with no conception of a struggle to change the social order. Whenever the revolution relaxed its vigilance for even a minute, they fell into errors that, with astonishing ease, led them into crime.
That moment demanded a strong hand. We were obliged to inflict exemplary punishment to eliminate the seeds of anarchy which sprang up in areas lacking a stable government. When we had performed the painful duty of establishing peace and moral order throughout the territory under the administration of the rebel army, we headed back toward Alombrito. Toward the end of October 1957, re-established at Alombrito, we began efforts to establish a region firmly defended by our army. With the aid of two students recently arrived from Havana, one studying engineering and the other veterinary science, we began to lay plans for a miniature hydroelectric station at the El Ombrito River. We also began production of our Mambi newspaper. We had brought up from the city an old mimeograph machine on which we printed the first issues of El Cubano Libre, whose editors and printers were the students Zeonel Rodriguez and Ricardito Medina. We began to organize our life at the sedentary stage thanks to the open generosity of the residents of El Ombrito. We built a bakery in an old abandoned peasant hut so that enemy aircraft would not detect any new construction. We also had an immense July 26 flag made bearing the inscription, Happy 1958. We raised it on the highest plateau of El Ombrito so that it would be seen as far away as Minas del Boisito. Meanwhile, we traveled through the region, establishing a real authority. At the same time, we were preparing for an imminent invasion from Sanchez Mosquera. For all the harshness of conditions in the Sierra Maestra, the day was superb. We were hiking through Agua Rives, one of the steepest and most labyrinthine valleys in the Turquino Basin, following Sanchez Mosquero's troops. The relentless killer had left a trail of burned-out farms, sadness, and despair throughout the region. But his trail led him by necessity to ascend along one of the two or three points of the Sierra Maestra where we knew Camilo would be, either the Nevada Ridge or the area we called the Ridge of the Crippled, now known as the Ridge of the Dead. Camilo had left hurriedly with about a dozen men to stop a column of over one hundred soldiers. My mission was to attack Sanchez Mosquera from behind. Our aim was encirclement. We therefore followed him patiently over a considerable distance past the painful trail of burning peasant houses. Our column advanced with difficulty along the slopes, while the enemy advanced through the center of a narrow valley. We heard gunfire and quickly descended the slopes amid the difficult terrain. We knew that Camilo had attacked. It took us a considerable amount of time to reach the last house before starting up the other side, moving carefully because we might come upon the enemy any moment. The exchange of fire had been intense, but it had not lasted long, and we were all tense with expectation. The last house was abandoned. There was no signs of the troops. Two scouts climbed the ridge of the crippled and soon returned with the news. There is a grave above. We dug it up and found one of the metalheads buried. They also brought the identity papers of the victim. There had been a clash, and one man was killed. The dead man was theirs, but that's all we knew. We returned slowly, discouraged. Two scouting parties came upon a large number of footprints along both sides of the ridge of the Sierra Maestra, but nothing else. We arrived during the night at a house also vacant. It was the Mar Verde homestead where we could rest. Soon a pig was cooked along with some yucca, and we ate. The Battle of Mar Verde Shortly before dawn at 5 a.m., I woke up from a restful sleep with my sixth sense developed in military life, dulled that day, by exhaustion and the comfort of a peasant's bed in the settlement of Mar Verde. 
we made breakfast in peace while awaiting news from the numerous messengers who had been sent out to make contact with the guerrilla squadrons. The sun had barely begun to shine when one of the few peasants remaining in the area came with strange and alarming news. He had seen soldiers looking for hens and eggs in a house no more than half a kilometer away. I sent him immediately to find out everything he could about the guards. He returned with news that a large group of soldiers was camped in the house belonging to Reyes, one or two kilometers up the Nevada mountain. It could be none other than Sanchez Mosquera. We then had to rapidly organize the form our combat would take. First, I had to imagine his future plans. He had two possible routes. He could take the path along the Nevada, an exhausting trek through the Santa Ana region to reach California and from there to Minas del Boisito. Alternately, and what seemed most logical because of the short trip and the possibilities it entailed for him, Sanchez Mosquera could follow the opposite route along the Torquino River, arriving at the village of Ocajur, at the foot of the Torquino Mountain. Because of our doubts, we had to rapidly reinforce both positions. The previous day, Camilo had clashed with them near Altos de Conrado, but at that moment we did not know where he was stationed. Messengers, however, were fast arriving. Our reserve forces at El Ombrito were mobilizing in the region of Nevada in order to take positions above Santos Mosquera and close off his route. Camilo had arrived and was in the zone. The squadrons of Lieutenants Noda and Vilo Acuña were sent to the west. Captain Raúl Castro Mercader closed the circle to the east. My small squadron, with some reinforcements, was in charge of conducting the ambush in the event they tried to descend toward the sea, which we considered likely. In the early hours of the morning, with the circle complete, the alarm was sounded. We could see the head of the enemy's forward guard advancing along the mid-road that followed a small stream flowing into the Torquino River. The spot chosen to begin the battle was flanked by hilly pasture land that allowed our troops to hide on one side of the road. On the other was a patch of trees that was where I was posted. It was my job to fire on the soldiers at point-blank range. Joel Iglesia and other compañeros were one or two meters ahead of me. We heard the soldiers passing almost right in front of us. In the pastures the others had seen, there were only three men, but they were unable to alert us in time. I rushed the first shot and missed. As happens, the firing immediately spread, and an attack was launched against the house where the bulk of Sanchez Mosquero's forces were stationed. Then in the midst of the ambush, an eerie silence developed. As we went to gather the dead, after the initial exchange, there was no one on the main road. Alongside the road was a hollowed-out path through the Tbilisi bushes, through which the enemy soldiers had slipped away. Joel Iglesias, followed by Rodolfo Vasquez and Joanel Rodriguez, entered the pass the soldiers had taken. I heard his voice calling on them to surrender and guaranteeing the prisoners' lives. Suddenly, a rapid burst of fire was heard, and I was informed that Joel was seriously wounded. All things considered, Joel's fate was extraordinary. Three Garand machine guns had opened fire on him at point-blank range. His rifle was hit by two bullets, another shot burned his hand, another hit his cheek, two went through his arm, two through his leg, and other shots grazed him. He was covered in blood, but his wounds were nevertheless relatively superficial. We retrieved him immediately and sent him in a hammock to the field hospital for medical attention. Silva's voice was heard shouting, There they are! and pointing out the place where they burst from his shotgun. We soon heard soldiers calling out their surrender. We thus obtained three garants with their corresponding prisoners. 
We were then able to concentrate on organizing the battle. Sanchez Mosquera had between 80 and 100 men in a well-defended position and had automatic weapons and abundant ammunition. With approximately the same number of combatants but inferior weapons, we decided to harass them until nightfall when we would begin our attack. A few hours later, however, news arrived that enemy reinforcements commanded by Captain Sierra were ascending the mountains from the sea. We immediately organized two patrols to stop them. One, led by William Rodriguez, was to attack them in the region of Dos Brazos del Turquino. The other patrol, commanded by Lieutenant Leva, was to attack as soon as they reached the top of a mountain only two kilometers from the battle site. I personally was in charge of preparations at the spot. The entire front was calm, and only occasionally did we fire at the house the soldiers were stationed in to keep them in check. At mid-afternoon, however, a prolonged exchange of fire was heard at the top of the position. Later I learned the sad news. Ciro Redondo had been killed, trying to attack the enemy lines. On our side, we also heard shots announcing the arrival of the enemy troops. Moments later, intense gunfire began, and our defenses along the southern part were overwhelmed. We were forced to retreat to the Valley of El Ombrito, our most secure refuge. After we arrived and heard the results of all the actions, we could piece together what had happened. According to the combatants' accounts, a number of enemy soldiers were killed, though we could not verify this news. Our wounded were Roberto Fajardo, Joel Pardo, a combatant named Reyes, who later died with the rank of captain, Javier Pasos, and Joel Iglesia. There was a great deal of sorrow. We had not been able to take advantage of the victory against Sanchez Mosquera, and we had lost our great compañero, Ciro Ridondo. I sent a letter to Fidel proposing his posthumous promotion, and shortly afterward the rank was conferred. News of this was published in our newspaper, El Cubano Libre. The battle and Ciro Ridondo's death occurred on November 29, 1957. Altos de Conrado The days following the Mar Verde battle were feverish with activity. We knew very well that we did not yet have sufficient fighting strength to maintain combat continuously, to encircle the enemy effectively or to resist frontal attacks. For this reason, we redoubled our defense measures in the valley of El Ombrito. This valley is a few kilometers from Mar Verde, and to get there, you have to take the road that climbs to Santa Ana and crosses the Gallabo, a little mountain stream. From Santa Ana, you got to the valley of El Embrito. You can also reach it, however, along the Gallabo River to the south, past the La Botella Hill. You can also take the road from Minas del Frio. We had to defend each of these points and establish a constant watch to avoid the enemy surprising us. The bulk of our excess supplies had been sent to Polo Torres' house in the La Mesa region. We had also taken our wounded there, among them Joel Iglesias. Sanchez Mosquera's troops were stationed at Santa Ana, and other enemy troops had taken the California road. Four or five days after the Malverde confrontation, the combat alarm sounded. Sanchez Mosquera's troops were advancing directly from Santa Ana to El Ambrito. Our men were waiting in ambush and checked the mines. These first mines made by us had a rudimentary detonation system, consisting of a spring and a spike striking the detonator. They had not functioned during the Marveda ambush, however, and this time they functioned no better. A 
A few moments later, noise of firing reached our command post, and news arrived that as the mines were not working and the enemy had arrived in force, our fighters had retreated, not without causing some damage to the enemy. Their first victim was described as a tall, fat sergeant armed with a forty-five revolver who led a mounted column. Lieutenant Enrico Noda and another fighter, El Mexicano, fired at him with their grarans from short range, and their description of the man coincided. They said other damage had been inflicted, yet the fact remained that Sanchez Mosquera's troops had beaten our defenses. Weeks later, a peasant by the name of Brito came to thank me for our generosity. He had been forced by the enemy to take a position at the head of the column, and he had clearly seen our men pretend to take aim and shoot at him. This same peasant told me that they had not suffered any casualties, although there had been some at Altos de Conrado. The spot we occupied was so difficult to defend with our small forces that we slowly fell back to the road leading to Altos de Conrado, Conrado's Heights, which is nothing more than a small hill rising from a ridge in the Sierra Maestra on whose heights lived a peasant named Conrado. This compañero was a member of the Popular Socialist Party, who had been with us from the beginning, providing many noble services. He had evacuated his family and his house was isolated. The place was magnificent for an ambush. There were only three narrow paths leading into it, which wound through the dense vegetation of the hills and therefore very easy to defend. The rest of it was defended by sheer boulders and equally sheer slopes. At one spot, where there was a small depression, the road widens. There we prepared to resist Sanchez Mosquero's attacks. On the first day we had placed two bombs with their fuses in the heart of the little hut. If we withdrew, the enemy would probably stay at the house and use the fire. The two bombs lay covered completely by ashes. We assumed that the fire would light the fuses. Naturally, this was a later recourse. First we would have to fight at Altos de Conrado. We waited patiently there for three days. The nights were very cold and damp at that altitude and in that season, and in reality we were not yet sufficiently prepared or accustomed to the hardship of spending entire nights in the open in battle position. We had prepared a leaflet for the soldiers using the mimeograph we printed El Cubano Libre on. We were going to post these on the trees along the road they would take. On the morning of December 8th, from the heights of our boulder, we heard the troop beginning its ascent. It wound along the road, getting to about 200 meters below us. We sent someone to post the leaflets. Compañero Luis Olazabal did so. We heard the troops shouting in a violent argument, and I clearly heard the shouted orders of someone who was apparently an officer. By my balls, you're going in front. The soldier, or whoever he was, refused angrily. The argument ceased and the troop began moving. We could see the column advancing in small groups hidden among the trees. After observing them for a moment, I became filled with doubt about the prudence of revealing our ambush to them with our leaflets. In the end, I sent Luis again to remove them. He had only a few seconds to do it, for the first soldiers were climbing rapidly. My post was behind a tree trunk that protected half of me. My gun was pointed directly at the opening to the path along which the soldiers were coming. I saw the first soldier appear. He looked around suspiciously and advanced slowly. In truth, everything smelled of an ambush. The little clearing amid the exuberant woods surrounding us. The trees, some cut down, others standing and charred by fire. A shot rang out and firing began. Our isolated shots and the wasteful lengthy burst by the soldiers. 
Several minutes later, we heard overhead the first whistles of mortar shells or bazookas fired by the soldiers, but their trajectory was too long and they exploded behind our backs. Suddenly, I felt a disagreeable sensation, a tingling of numbness. I had been shot in my left foot, which was not protected by the tree trunk. At the moment I was hit, I heard some men advancing rapidly in my direction, making a great noise as they broke through branches. My rifle was of no further use to me, since I had just discharged it and my pistol was beneath my body. With desperate speed, I rolled over and succeeded in grabbing the pistol. At the same moment, one of our men appeared, the one we called Cantinflas. On top of the anguished moments and the pain from my wound, poor Cantinflas came to tell me he was withdrawing because his rifle was jammed. I snatched the garand from his hand and examined it while he crouched beside me. The only thing wrong was that the clip was tilted slightly. I handed it back to him in working order along with a razor-sharp diagnosis. You are a dummy! Cantinflas, whose real name was Oñate, took the rifle and, leaving the refuge of the tree trunk, hastened to empty his garand in a demonstration of courage. He could not complete this, however, because a bullet struck his left arm and came out through his shoulder blade. Now two of us were wounded and stranded in the same place, and it was difficult to retreat under the firing. Little by little we did so, but Cantinflas kept fainting. In spite of the pain, I was able to move more freely and made it to the others to ask for help. After rescuing the wounded both of us, we set off toward Polo Torres's house, two or three kilometers below in the Sierra Maestra. After the first euphoric moments and the excitement of combat had passed, I began to feel the pain more sharply, making it difficult to walk. At last, halfway there, I mounted a horse and thus arrived at our improvised hospital. Cantinflas, meanwhile, was carried on our field stretcher, a hammock. The gunfire had ceased, and we assumed the enemy had taken Altos de Conrado. We sent out guards to detain them on the banks of a little stream in a place we had christened Pata del Mesa, Table Leg. At the same time we organized the withdrawal of the peasants and their families, I sent a long letter to Fidel describing the events. I sent a column, commanded by Ramiro Valdez, to join up with Fidel. I wanted to stay only with indispensable men to ensure an agile defense. Owing to the apparent calm the day after the battle, we sent Raimundo Lian, one of our best scouts, to find out what the enemy was up to. We then learned that the troop had completely withdrawn from the region. The army had never advanced from where they had dug in to resist our attack. Each had retreated along their own side. A trail of burned-out huts typical of Sanchez Mosquero's passing was all that remained of El Ombrito and other areas. Our bakery had been conscientiously destroyed. In the midst of the smoking ruins, we found nothing but some cats and a pig. They had escaped the destructive fury of the invaders only to fall into our gullets. A day or two after the battle, José Ramón Machado, today the Minister of Public Health, operated on me with a razor, extracting an M1 rifle bullet. From then on, my recovery was rapid. One Year of Armed Struggle By the beginning of 1958, we had completed more than a year of fighting. A brief account of our military, organizational, and political situation at that point is necessary, as is a description of how we were progressing. Regarding our military situation, let us concisely recall that our troop had disembarked on December 2, 1956, at Las Coloradas Beach. Three days later, on December 5th, we were surprised and beaten at Alagria del Pio. By the end of the month, we had regrouped to begin small-scale actions appropriate to our strength 
at La Plata, a small barracks on the banks of the river of the same name on the southern coast of Oriente. The fundamental characteristics of our troop during the whole period between disembarking, the immediate defeat at Alegría del Pío, and the Battle of El Uvero was that it was one single guerrilla group led by Fidel Castro and constantly mobile. We could call this the nomadic phase. Between December 2, 1956, and May 28, 1957, the date of the Battle of El Uvero, we slowly established links with the city. During this period, these relations were characterized by lack of understanding on the part of the urban leadership of the July 26 movement, of our importance as the vanguard of the revolution, and of Fidel's stature as its leader. Then, two distinct opinions began to crystallize regarding tactics to be followed. They corresponded to two distinct concepts of strategy, which were thereafter known as the Sierra and the Llano. Our discussions and our internal conflicts were quite sharp. Nevertheless, the fundamental concerns of this phase were survival and the establishment of a guerrilla base. The reactions of the peasants have already been analyzed many times. Immediately after the Alegria del Pío disaster, we felt their warm camaraderie and spontaneous support for our defeated troops. After the regrouping and the first clashes and the simultaneous repression by Batista's army, Terror spread among the peasants, and a coldness toward our forces appeared. The fundamental problem was that if they saw us, they had to denounce us. If the army learned of our presence to other sources, they were lost. Denouncing us went against their conscience, and in any case put them in danger, since revolutionary justice was swift. In spite of a terrorized, or at least a neutralized and insecure peasantry, which chose to avoid the serious dilemma by leaving the Sierra Maestra, our army was increasingly entrenching itself. We were taking possession of the terrain and achieving absolute control of a zone of the Sierra Maestra extending beyond Torquino Peak in the east and toward Caracas Peak in the west. Little by little, as the peasants saw the length of the struggle and that the guerrillas were invincible, they began to respond more rationally, joining our army as fighters. From then on, they not only filled our ranks, they also grouped themselves around us and the guerrilla army became strongly entrenched in the countryside, especially since the peasants usually had relatives throughout the entire zone. We called this dressing the guerrillas in palm leaves. The column was strengthened not only through the support of the peasants and individual volunteers, but also by forces sent from the National Committee of the July 26 Movement and the Oriente Provincial Committee, which had considerable autonomy. In the period between the disembarkation and El Evero, a column arrived consisting of some fifty men divided into five fighting platoons, each with a weapon. The battles of La Plata and Arroyo del Infierno took place before this group joined us. We had been taken by surprise in Altos de Espinosa, losing one of our men there. The same thing almost happened in the Gaviro region, after a traitor, whose mission was to kill Fidel, led the army to us. The bitter experiences of these surprises and our arduous life in the mountains were tempering us as veterans. The new troop received its baptism of fire in the Battle of El Uvero. This action was of great importance because it marked the point at which we carried out a frontal attack in broad daylight against a well-defended post. It was one of the bloodiest episodes of the war, taking into account the length of the battle and the number of participants. As a consequence of this clash, the enemy was dislodged from the coastal zones of the Sierra Maestra. 
after El Uvero, our smaller column of the wounded under my care and other individual combatants who had joined us, rejoined the principal column. I was named chief of column number two, later called column number four, which operated east of Turquino. It is worth noting that the column led personally by Fidel operated primarily to the west of Turquino Peak, and ours on the other side as far as we could extend ourselves. There was a certain tactical independence of command, but we were under Fidel's orders and kept in touch with him every week or two by messenger. The division of forces coincided with the July 26th anniversary, and while the troops of José Martí column number one attacked Estrada Palma in a series of actions, we marched rapidly toward the settlement of Boisito, which we attacked and took in our column's first battle. Between that time and the first days of January 1958, the consolidation of rebel territory was achieved. In order to penetrate this territory, the army had to concentrate its forces and advance in strong columns. Their preparations were extensive and results limited, since they lacked mobility. Various enemy columns were encircled and others decimated or at least halted. Our knowledge of the area and our maneuverability increased and we entered a sedentary period, one of fixed encampments. In the first attack on Pino del Agua, we used subtler methods, fooling the enemy completely, since we were by then familiar with their habits, which were as Fidel anticipated, a few days after he let himself be seen in the area, the punitive expedition would arrive. My troops would ambush it, and meanwhile Fidel would pop up elsewhere. At the end of the year, the enemy troops retreated once more from the Sierra Maestra, and we remained in control of the territory between Caracas Peak and Piño del Agua, on the west and east. To the south was the sea, and the army occupied the small villages on the slopes of the Sierra Maestra to the north. Our area of operations was broadly extended when Piño del Agua was attacked for the second time by our entire troop under the personal command of Fidel. Two new columns were formed, the Frank Pais column number six, commanded by Raúl, and Almiedas column. Both had come out of column number one, commanded by Fidel, which was a steady source of these offshoots created to establish our forces in distant territories. This was a period of consolidation for our army, lasting until the Second Battle of Pino del Agua on February 16, 1958. It was characterized by deadlock. We had insufficient forces to attack the enemy's fortified and relatively easily defended positions, while they did not advance on us. To the list of military feats in the Sierra Maestra must be added the work carried out by the Llano forces in these cities. In each of the nation's principal towns, groups were fighting against Batista's regime, but the two focal points of the struggle were Havana and Santiago. Comprehensive communication between the Llano and the Sierra was always lacking due to two fundamental factors, the geographical isolation of the Sierra Maestra and all types of tactical and strategic differences between the two groups. This situation arose from differing social and political conceptions. The Sierra Maestra was isolated because of geographical condition and because the army's cordon was sometimes extremely difficult to break through. In this brief sketch of the country's struggle over the course of a year, we must mention the activities, generally fruitless and culminating in unfortunate results, of other groups of fighters. On March 13, 1957, the Revolutionary Directorate attacked the presidential palace in an attempt to bring Batista to justice. A fine handful of fighters fell in that action, 
headed by the president of the Federation of University Students, a great fighter and a symbol of our youth, Manzanita Echevarria. A few months later, in May, a landing was attempted. It had probably already been betrayed before setting out from Miami, since it was financed by the trader Prio. It resulted in a massacre of almost all its participants. This was the Corinthia expedition, led by Calixto Sanchez, who was killed together with his compañeros, by Cowley, the assassin from Northern Oriente, who was later brought to justice by members of our movement. Fighting groups were established in the Escambre, some of them led by the July 26 movement and others by the Revolutionary Directorate. The latter groups were originally led by a member of the Revolutionary Directorate, who later betrayed them, and then the revolution itself, Guiteres Menoyo, today in exile. The combatants loyal to the Revolutionary Directorate formed a separate column that was later directed by Commander Shomon. Those who remained set up the Second National Front of Escombré. Small cells were formed in the Cristal and Baracora Mountains, which at times were half guerrilla, half cattle rustler. Raúl cleaned them up when he invaded with column number six. Another incident in the armed struggle of that period was the uprising at the Sinfuegos Naval Base on September 5, 1957, led by Lieutenant San Román, who was assassinated when the coup failed. The base was not supposed to be rebel alone. But this was not a spontaneous action. It was part of a large underground movement among the armed forces, led by a group of so-called pure military men, those untainted by the dictatorship's crimes, which today, it is obvious, was penetrated by Yankee imperialism. For some obscure motive, the uprising was postponed to a later date, but the Sinfuegos naval base did not receive the order in time. Unable to stop the uprising, they decided to go through with it, at first they gained control, but they committed the tragic error of not marching for the Escombré Mountains. Only a few minutes away from Sinfuegos, at the moment when they controlled the entire city and had the means to form a solid front in the mountains. National and local leaders of the July 26 movement participated. So did the people. At least they shared in the enthusiasm that led to the revolt, and some of them took up arms. This may have created a moral obligation on the part of the uprising's leaders, tying them even closer to the conquered city, but the course of events developed as in every uprising of its type, which history has seen and will see again. Obviously, the underestimation of the guerrilla struggle by academy-oriented military men played an important role, as did their lack of faith in the guerrilla movement as an expression of the people's struggle. The conspirators, probably assuming that without the aid of their comrades in arms they were lost, decided to fight to the death within the narrow boundaries of a city, their backs to the sea, until they were virtually annihilated by the superior forces of the enemy, which had easily mobilized its troops and converged on Sinfuegos. The July 26 movement, participating as an unarmed ally, could not have changed the scenario, even if its leaders had seen the end result clearly, which they did not. The lesson for the future is that he who has the strength dictates the strategy. The large-scale killing of civilians, repeated failures, murders committed by the dictatorship in distinct points of the struggle, indicate that guerrilla action on favorable terrain is the best expression of popular struggle against a despotic, still strong government, that it is the least painful for the children of the people. After the guerrilla force was established, we could count our losses on our fingers. Compañeros of outstanding courage and resolve in battle, to be sure. 
In these cities, however, not only the resolute died, but so did many among their followers who are not totally committed revolutionaries or who were innocent of any involvement at all. They were more vulnerable in the face of repressive action. By the end of this first year of struggle, a general uprising throughout the country was on the horizon. Acts of sabotage ranging from the well-planned and technically executed to the trivial, hot-headed terrorist acts carried out on individual impulse left a tragic toll of innocent deaths and sacrifices among the best fighters without any real advantage to the people's cause. We were consolidating our military situation and the territory we occupied was extensive. By the end of the year, in organizational terms, our guerrilla army had developed sufficiently to have an elementary infrastructure regarding provisions, certain minimal industrial services, hospitals, and communication services. The problems of each guerrilla fighter were very simple. To subsist as an individual, they needed small amounts of food and certain indispensable items like clothes and medicine. To subsist as a guerrilla, that is, as part of an armed force in struggle, they needed arms and ammunition. For their political development, they needed information. To assure these minimal necessities is precisely why a communications and information apparatus was required. In the beginning, the small guerrilla units, some twenty men, would eat a meager ration of Sierra Maestra vegetables, chicken soup in the case of a banquet, and sometimes the peasants provided a pig for which they were paid religiously. As the guerrilla force grew and groups of new pre-guerrillas were trained, more provisions were needed. The Sierra Maestra peasants did not have cattle, and theirs was generally a subsistence diet. They depended on the sale of their coffee to buy any processed items they needed, such as salt, which did not exist in the Sierra Maestra. As an initial measure, we arranged with certain peasants that they should plant specific crops, beans, corn, rice, etc., which we guaranteed to purchase. At the same time, we agreed on terms with some merchants in nearby towns for the supply of foodstuffs and equipments. Mule teams were organized, belonging to the guerrilla forces. As for medicines, we obtained them in the cities, not always in the quantity or quality we needed. It was difficult to bring arms up from the plains. To the natural difficulties of geographical isolation were added the requirements of the city forces themselves and their reluctance to deliver arms to the guerrillas. Fidel was constantly involved in sharp discussions in an effort to secure the arrival of equipment. The only substantial shipment made to us during the first year of struggle, except for what the combatants brought with them, was the remainder of the arms used in the attack on the presidential palace. These were transported with the cooperation of a big landowner and timber merchant of the zone, Vavun, whom I have already mentioned. Our ammunition was limited in quantity and lacking the necessary variety. It was impossible, however, for us to manufacture it ourselves or even to recharge cartridges in this first period except for 38 bullets which our gunsmith would recharge with a little gunpowder and some of the 3006 bullets to use in the single-shot guns since they cut the semi-automatics to jam. In respect of organizing the life of the camps and communications, certain sanitary regulations were established and in this period the first hospitals were organized. One was set up in the zone under my command in an inaccessible place that offered relative security to the wounded, since it was invisible from the air. But it was in the heart of a dense woods, and dampness made it unhealthy for the wounded and sick. This hospital was organized by Compañero Sergio del Valle, the doctors Martínez Payes, Vallejo, 
and Piti Fajardo organized similar hospitals in Fidel's column, but these were only improved during the second year of the struggle. The troops' equipment needs, such as cartridge boxes, belts, backpacks, and shoes, were covered by a small leather goods workshop set up in Arzon. I took the first army cap we turned out to Fidel, bursting with pride. Later I became the butt of everyone's joke. They claimed it was the cap of a gauchero, a bus driver. Our most important industrial installation was a forge and armory, where defective arms were repaired and bombs, mines, and the famous M26 small bombs were made. At first, the mines were made of tin cans, and we filled them with material from the unexploded bombs frequently dropped by enemy planes. These mines were defective, their firing pins for striking the detonator frequently missed. Later, a compañero had the idea of using the whole bomb in major attacks, removing the detonator and replacing it with a loaded shotgun. We pulled the trigger from a distance using a cord, and it exploded. Afterward, we perfected the system, making special fuses of metal alloy and electric detonators. These gave better results. Although we began this development, Fidel gave it real impetus. Later, in his new operation center, Raul created stronger industries than ours were during the first year of the war. To please the smokers among us, we set up a cigar factory. The cigars we made were terrible, but lacking better, they tasted glorious. The butcher shop of our army was supplied with cattle confiscated from informers and big landowners. We shared equitably, one part for the peasant population and one part for our troop. As for disseminating our ideas, first we started a small newspaper, El Cubano Libre. Three or four issues came out under our supervision. It was later edited by Luis Orlando Rodriguez, and subsequently Carlos Franchi gave it new impetus. We had a mimeograph machine brought up to us from the plains on which the paper was printed. By the end of the first year and the beginning of the second, we had a small radio transmitter. The first regular broadcast of Radio Rebelde were made in February 1958. Our only listeners were Palencho, a peasant who lived on the hill facing the station, and Fidel, who was visiting our camp in preparation for the attack on Pino del Alba. He listened to it on our own receiver. Little by little, the technical quality of the broadcast improved. Then it was taken over by column number one, and by the end of the campaign in December 1958, had become one of the highest-rating Cuban stations. All these small advances, including our equipment, such as a winch and some generators, laboriously carried up to the Sierra Maestra to have electric light, were due to our own connections. To confront our difficulties, we had to begin creating our own network of communications and information. In this respect, Lidia Dose played an important part in my column, Clodomira Acosta in Fidel's. Help came not only from people in neighboring villages, even the urban bourgeoisie contributed equipment to the guerrilla struggle. Our lines of communication reached as far as the towns of Contra Maestra, Palma, Buesito, Minas de Buesito, Estrada Palma, Yaro, Bayamo, Manzanillo, and Giza. These places served as relay stations. Goods were then carried by mule along hidden trails in the Sierra Maestra up to our positions. At times, those among us who were in training but not yet armed went down to the nearest towns such as Yao or Minas with some of our armed men, or they would go to well-stocked stores in the district. They carried supplies up to our refuge on their backs. 
the only item we never or almost never lacked in the Sierra Maestra was coffee. At times we lacked salt, one of the most important foods for survival, whose virtues we became aware of only when it was scarce. When we began to broadcast from our own transmitter, the undeniable existence of our troops and their determination to fight became known throughout the Republic. Our links began to become more extensive and complex, even reaching Havana and Camagüey to the west, where we had important supply centers, and Santiago in the east. Our information service developed in such a way that peasants in the zone immediately notified us of the presence not only of the army, but of any stranger. We could easily detain such a person to investigate their activities. Many army agents and informers infiltrating the zone to scrutinize our lives and our actions were eliminated in this way. We began to establish a legal service, but as of then, no Sierra Maestra law had been promulgated. Such was our organizational situation at the beginning of the last year of the war. As for the political struggle, it was very complicated and contradictory. Batista's dictatorship was supported by a Congress elected through so many frauds that it could count on a comfortable majority to do its bidding. Certain dissident opinions, when there was no censorship, were allowed expression, but officials and official spokespeople had powerful voices, and the networks transmitted their calls for national unity throughout the island. Otto Merulo's hysterical voice alternated with the pompous buffooneries of Pardo Yada and Conte Arguiero. The latter, repeating and writing what he had broadcast, called on Brother Fidel to accept coexistence with Batista's regime. Opposition groups were varied and diverse, though as a common denominator most had the wish to take power, read public funds, for themselves. These brought in its wake a sordid internal struggle to win that victory. Batista's agents infiltrated all the groups and at key moments denounced any significant activities to the government. Although gangsterism and opportunism characterized these groups, they also had their martyrs, some of national repute. In effect, Cuban society was in such total disarray that brave and honest people were sacrificing their lives to maintain the comfortable existence of such personages as Prio Socarras. The revolutionary directorate took the path of insurrectional struggle, but their movement was independent of ours and they had their own line. The Popular Socialist Party, PSP, joined us in certain concrete activities. But mutual distrust hampered joint action and fundamentally the Workers' Party did not clearly understand the role of the guerrilla force or Fidel's personal role in our revolutionary struggle. During a friendly discussion, I once made an observation to a PSP leader, which he later repeated to others, as an accurate characterization of that period. You were capable of creating cadres who can endure the most terrible tortures in jail without uttering a word, but you can create cadres who can take out a machine gun nest. As I saw it from my guerrilla vantage point, this was the consequence of a strategic conception, a determination to struggle against imperialism and the abuses of the exploiting classes, together with an inability to envision the possibility of taking power. Later, some other people of guerrilla spirit were to join us, but by then the end of armed struggle was near. Its influence on them was slight. Within our own movement there were two quite clearly defined tendencies, which we have already referred to as the Sierra and the Llano. Differences over strategic concepts separated us. The Sierra was already confident of being able to carry out the guerrilla struggle, 
to spread it to other places and from the countryside to encircle the cities held by the dictatorship and by strangulation and attrition destroy the entire apparatus of the regime. The Llano took an ostensibly more revolutionary position, that of armed struggle in all towns culminating in a general strike which would topple Batista and allow the prompt taking of power. This position was only apparently more revolutionary because in that period the political development of the Llano Compañeros was not complete and their conception of a general strike was too narrow. A general strike called the following year without warning, in secrecy, without prior political preparation or mass action, would lead to the defeat of April 9, 1958. These two tendencies were represented in the National Committee of the Movement, which changed as the struggle developed. In the preparatory stage, until Fidel left for Mexico, the National Committee consisted of Fidel, Raúl, Faustino Pérez, Pedro Miret, Nico López, Armando Hart, Pepe Sores, Pedro Aguirre, Luis Bonito, Jesús Montoné, Melba Hernández, and Heidi Santa Maria. If my information is not incorrect, and considering my personal participation at that time was very limited and documentation is scarce. Later, for reasons of incompatibility, Pepe Sores, Pedro Aguirre, and Luis Bonito withdrew. While we were preparing for the struggle in Mexico, the following people joined the committee. Mario Hidalgo, Aldo Santa Maria, Carlos Franqui, Gustavo Arcos, and Frank Pais. Of all the compañeros named, Fidel and Raúl alone went to the Sierra Maestra and remained there during the first year. Faustino Pérez, a grama expeditionary, was put in charge of actions in the city. Pedro Miret was jailed a few hours before we were to leave Mexico. He remained there until the following year when he arrived in Cuba with an arm shipment. Nico Lopez died only a few days after landing. Armando Hart was jailed at the end of that year. Jesus Montané was jailed after the landing, as was Mario Hidalgo. Melba Hernández and Heidi Santa Maria worked in the cities. Aldo Santa Maria and Carlos Franqui joined the struggle in the Sierra Maestra the following year. Gustavo Arcos remained in Mexico, in charge of political liaisons and supplies. Frank Baez, assigned to head up actions in Santiago, was killed in July 1957. Later the following people joined the leadership body within the Sierra. Celia Sanchez, who stayed with us throughout 1958, Vilma Aspin, who was working in Santiago and finished the war with Raúl Castro's column, Marcelo Fernández, coordinator of the movement who replaced Faustino after the April 9th strike and stayed with us for only a few weeks since his work was out in the towns. René Ramos Latour, assigned to organizing the Llano Militia, came up to the Sierra Maestra after the April 9th failure and during the second year of the struggle died heroically as a commander. David Salvador, in charge of the labor movement, on which he left the imprint of his opportunist and divisive actions, he was later to betray the revolution and is now in prison. Some of the Sierra fighters, such as Juan Almieda, were to join the national leadership sometime later. As can be seen, during this stage, the Llano Compañeros constituted the majority. Their political backgrounds, which had not really been influenced by the revolutionary process, led them to favor a certain type of civil action and to a kind of resistance to the caldillo they saw in Fidel and to the militarist faction represented by us in the Sierra Maestra. 
The differences were already apparent, but they were not yet strong enough to provoke the turbulent discussions that characterized the second year of the war. It is important to point out that those fighting the dictatorship in the Sierra and the Llano were able to sustain opinions on tactics that were at times diametrically opposed, without this leading to abandoning the insurrectional struggle. Their revolutionary spirit continued to deepen until the moment when, victory in hand, followed by our first experiences in the struggle against imperialism, they all came together in 1961 in a strong party-like organization led indisputably by Fidel. This group then joined with the Revolutionary Directorate and the Popular Socialist Party to form the United Party of the Socialist Revolution in 1963. In the face of external pressure from outside our movement and attempts to divide or infiltrate it, we always presented a common front. Even those compañeros who in the period we are describing viewed the picture of the Cuban Revolution with imperfect perspective were wary of opportunists. When Felipe Passos, invoking the name of the July 26 movement, sought to appropriate for himself and for the most corrupt oligarchic interests of Cuba, the positions offered by the Miami Pact, including the position of provisional president, the entire movement united solidly against this stand and supported the letter Fidel Castro sent to the organizations involved in the struggle against Batista. By the beginning of 1958, a certain truce had been established between our forces and Batista's troops. The army, nevertheless, continued to issue communiques reporting eight rebel losses one day, twenty-three the next, of course suffering no losses themselves. This was their most common tactic, especially in the region where my column was operating, in which Sanchez Mosquero dedicated himself to imaginary battles against rebel forces, murdering peasants whose corpses added to his service record. At the end of January, censorship was lifted, and for the last time until the war ended, the newspapers printed some news. An air of truce was blowing through government circles. Ramirez Leon, one of Batista's legislators, made a more or less spontaneous trip accompanied by a legislator from Manzanillo, Lalo Roca, and a Spanish journalist from Paris Match named Meneses, who conducted a series of interviews in the Sierra Maestra. In the United States, long statements about the denunciation of the Miami Pact were being published by the Committee in Exile of the July 26th Movement, whose president was Mario Lerena and whose treasurer was Raul Chivas. These representatives found their work in that part of the world so good for their health that at present it has apparently become their permanent residence, with Meneses published in the magazine Bohemia had international repercussions. But within the country, there was an interesting debate between Mas Ferrer and Ramirez Leon during those fleeting days when the Havana press published a little news. Censorship had been lifted in five of the six provinces. In Oriente, constitutional guarantees were still suspended and censorship continued. In the middle of January, a group of members of the July 26 movement, taken prisoner as they were leaving the Sierra Maestra, were brought before the press. They included Armando Hart, Javier Pasos, Luis Buch, and a guide named Elulio Vallejo. This news was of some interest despite the fact that compañeros were taken prisoner and often assassinated every day, because it revealed the polemic that had already become more or less public between the two parts of the July 26 movement. In response to a fairly idiotic letter I had sent compañero René Ramos Latour, 
he wrote me a rejoinder. A copy of my letter, however, was circulated. Armando Hart wrote me a polemical note and intended to send it to me from the Sierra Maestra, where he had gone to see Fidel. Fidel, however, believed that this letter would provoke yet another one, then another, until at some point or another the thing could fall into enemy hands, which would do us no good. With discipline, Armando obeyed the order, but he forgot the note was in one of his pockets, and it was on him when he was arrested. The lives of Armando Hart and his compañeros hung by a thread during the days they were held incommunicado in prison. The Yankee embassy mobilized to investigate the source of the controversy. As a result of the particular terms expressed in the respective arguments, the enemy sensed something and picked up its ears. Independent of this incident, Fidel felt it was important to strike a resounding blow to take advantage of the lifting of censorship. We prepared ourselves for this. Once again, Pino del Agua was the spot chosen. We had attacked it once successfully in September 1957. From then on, the enemy had occupied it. Even when the troops were not moving about much, their position on the crest of the Sierra Maestra made wide detours necessary, and traffic in the zone was always dangerous. The elimination of Pino del Agua as an army forward position would be of great strategic importance, and given the new press conditions in the country, could resonate nationally. From the first days in February, feverish preparations and the inspection of the era began, mainly by Roberto Ruiz and Felix Tamayo, both from the region and today officers in our army. We also hastened preparations of our latest weapon, the M26, also called Sputnik, to which we attributed exceptional importance. It was a small tin-plate bomb, which we first launched using a complicated apparatus, a kind of catapult made with the lines from an underwater spare gun. Later we perfected it so that we could launch it using a rifle and cartridges, making the device travel much farther. These little bombs made a lot of noise and were frightening, but since they had only a tin plate casing, their lethal power was minor, and when they exploded close to enemy soldiers, they inflicted only minor wounds. In addition, it was very difficult to time the lighting of the fuse so that the final trajectory and the explosion would coincide perfectly. Because of the impact of the launch, the fuses often went out and the little bombs would not explode, falling intact into enemy hands. When the enemy realized this, they no longer feared them. In this first battle, though, they had their psychological effect. We made the preparations with infinite care and the attack took place on February 16, 1958. Our efforts were reported in El Cubano Libre, in which we produced a near-exact synthesis of how the battle took place. The strategic plan was very simple. Fidel, knowing that an entire company was in the sawmill, doubted that our troops could take the camp. Our goal was to attack, destroy their posts, surround the camp, and watch for reinforcements, for we knew well the troops on the march are more alert than stationary troops. We established various ambushes and expected great results from them, stationing at each an appropriate number of men to deal with the likelihood of that enemy forces would pass that way. The attack was directed personally by Fidel, whose general staff was on a hill to the north, commanding a clear view of the sawmill. The battle plan. Camilo was to advance along the road from El Uvero, passing through by Mesa. His troops, the forward guard of column number four, were to take the posts, advance as far as the terrain permitted, and hold there. Retreating guards were to be impeded by Captain Raúl Castro Micader's platoon, 
situated on the edge of the road to Bayamo, and in case the enemy tried to reach the Paladero River, Captain Guillermo Garcia was waiting for them with some 25 men. When firing started, our mortar, which Kiala was operating and which had exactly six shells, would enter the fray, then the siege would begin. An ambush led by Lieutenant Vilo Acuña and the Loma de la Virgen would aim to intercept troops coming from El Iverro. And farther away to the north, waiting for troops coming from Yao by way of Vega de los Hobos, was Lalo Sardinas with some snipers. In this ambush, we first tested a speciality of mine with far from successful results. Compañero Antonio Esteves, later killed during an attack on Bayamo, had contrived a system for exploding undetonated airplane bombs using a gunshot as a detonator. We installed the device, foreseeing an army advance through an area in which we had little strength. There was a lamentable mistake. The very inexperienced and highly nervous compañero in charge of announcing the arrival of the enemy gave the signal at the approach of a civilian truck. The mine worked and the driver became the innocent victim of this new weapon that, after it was developed, became so effective. At dawn on February 16th, Camilo moved to take the posts, but our guides had not yet expected the guards to pull back very close to their camp during the night. There was quite a delay before the attack began. The men thought they were in the wrong place and moved forward very cautiously, not realizing what the enemy had done. It took Camilo and his twenty men no less than an hour to cover the five hundred meters between the two positions, walking single file. They finally reached the settlement. The guards had installed a simple alarm system, some string near ground level with tin cans tied to it. The cans rattled when stepped on or when the string was touched, but they had also left some horses grazing, so that when the column's forward guard brushed the string, the soldiers thought it was just the horses. Camilo was therefore able to get very close to them. On the other side, our vigil became more anxious as the hours passed before the long-awaited attack began. Finally, we heard the first shot marking the beginning of the battle, and we started our bombardment, the six motor shells, that ended quickly with neither pain nor glory. The guards had seen or heard the first attacks, and with the burst of gunfire that began the battle, they wounded Compañero Angel Guevara, who later died in our hospital. In a few minutes, Camilo's forces had wiped out any resistance, taking eleven weapons and three prisoners and killing seven or eight. But resistance inside the barracks was organized immediately, and our attacks were held off. Lieutenants Noda and Capote and the fighter Raimundo Lien died one after the other attempting to advance. Camilo was wounded in the thigh, and Vireas had to retreat, abandoning the machine gun he was in charge of operating. Despite his wound, Camilo returned at dawn to try and salvage the weapon. In the first light of dawn, he was caught in a hill of fire and wounded again. While Camilo was rescued and the machine gun lost, another compañero, Luis Macias, was wounded and dragged himself through the bushes in the opposite direction from the retreat of his compañeros. There he met his death. Some isolated fighters from the positions near the barracks bombarded it with the Sputniks or N-26s, sowing confusion among the soldiers. Guillermo Garcia could not participate at all in this battle, since the soldiers made no attempt to leave their refuge, as we had foreseen, they immediately radioed for help. At mid-morning the situation throughout the zone was calm, but from our command post we heard shouting which filled us with anguish, along the lines of, Here goes Camilo's machine gun! followed by some volleys. 
Along with the abandoned tripod machine gun, Camilo had left his cap with his name inscribed on the inside, and the guards were making fun of us. We guessed that something had happened, but for the whole day we could not make contact with the troops on the other side. Meanwhile, Camilo, attended by Sergio del Valle, refused to retreat, and they waited there for further developments. Fidel's predictions were coming true. The company, led by Captain Sierra, sent forward guard units from Oro de Giza to investigate what was happening at Pino de Agua. Waiting for them was Paco Cabrera's entire platoon, about 30 to 35 men stationed by the road, on the hill called Al Caval because of the cable to help vehicles make the difficult climb. Our squadrons were posted under the command of Lieutenants Eddie Suñol, Alamo, Reyes, and William Rodriguez. Paco Cabrera was also there as platoon leader, but those in charge of holding off the forward guard were Paz and Duque facing the road. The small enemy force advanced and was completely destroyed, eleven dead and five wounded prisoners who were treated in a house and left there. Second Lieutenant Laferte, who today is one of us, was also taken prisoner, and twelve rifles were captured, among them two M1s and a machine gun, as well as a Johnson. One or two soldiers who were able to flee made it to Oro de Giza with the news. Receiving word, the people in Oro de Giza must have asked for help, but Raul Castro was stationed with all his forces between Giza and Oro de Giza. We had presumed the guards would arrive this way to relieve the besieged men at Pino de Agua. Raul organized his forces so that Felix Peña and the forward guard would close the road to enemy reinforcements, then a squadron with that of Ciro Frias would attack the enemy immediately, and then Efingenio would close the encirclement in the rear. One detail went unnoticed, two inoffensive and bewildered peasants, who passed all of our positions with roosters under their arms, turned out to be army soldiers from Ora de Giza, sent to explore the road. They observed our troops' positions and reported to their comrades in Giza. As a result, since they knew his position, Raoul had to bear the brunt of the army's offensive. They attacked him from an elevation and Raoul had to make a long retreat, during which one man was wounded and one man, Florencio Quesada, was killed. The road from Bayamo, which passes through Ore de Giza, was the only route taken by the army in its attempt to advance. Although Raúl was obliged to retreat, given his disadvantageous position, enemy troops advanced very slowly along the road and did not appear during the whole day. That day we were under constant attack by the army's B-26s, which machine-gunned the hills with no greater results than inconveniencing us, obliging us to take precautions. Fidel was euphoric over the battle. At the same time, he was worried about the fate of our compañeros. That night I insisted that an attack of the kind Camilo had carried out was possible, that we could overcome the guards posted in Pino del Agua. Fidel was not in favor of the idea, but he finally agreed to try it. Sending a force under Escalona's command, composed of Ignacio Perez and Raúl Castro Mercader's platoons, the compañeros approached and did everything possible to reach the barracks, but they were repelled by heavy fire and retreated without trying to attack again. The following morning, amid constant aerial attack, the order for a general retreat was given along the ridge of the Sierra Maestra. As can be noted in the official dispatch we issued at the time, the enemy suffered between 18 to 25 deaths, and we captured 33 rifles, 5 machine guns, and a lot of ammunition. Sometime later, Pino del Agua was abandoned, and we completed the liberation of the western part of the Sierra Maestra.
A few days after the battle, one of the most important actions of the struggle occurred. Column number three, under the direction of Commander Almeida, moved toward the region of Santiago, and the Frank Pais column number six, under the direction of Commander Raúl Castro, crossed the eastern plains, penetrated Mangos de Barugua, went on to Pinares de Mayari, and then formed the Frank Pais second eastern front. Interlude In the months of April and June 1958, two poles could be seen in the insurrectional wave. Beginning in February, after the battle at Pino de Agua, this wave gradually increased until it threatened to become an uncontainable avalanche. People were rising in insurrection against the dictatorship throughout the country, and particularly in Oriente province. After the failure of the April 9th general strike called by the July 26th movement, the wave subsided until it reached its lowest point in June, when the dictatorship's troops more and more tightened their encirclement of column number one. In the first days of April, Camilo had left the protection of the Sierra Maestra for the area of El Cauto, where he was appointed commander of an Antonio Maceo column number two and carried out a series of impressive feats in the plains of Oriente. Camilo was the first army commander who went out onto the plains to fight with the morale and effectiveness of the army of the Sierra Maestra, putting the dictatorship in hard straits until several days after the April 9th failure, when he returned to the Sierra Maestra. Taking advantage of the situation, during the height of the revolutionary wave, many camps were set up composed of some people who were yearning to fight, and others who were thinking only of keeping their uniforms clean so as to enter Havana in triumph. After April 9th, when the dictatorship's counteroffensive began to step up, those groups disappeared or joined the Sierra forces. Morel fell so much that the enemy army considered it opportune to offer pardons and it prepared leaflets which had dropped by air in the rebel zones. The leaflets read, Compatriots, if by having become involved in insurrectional plots you are still in the countryside or in the mountains, you now have the opportunity to make amends and return to your family. The government has issued orders to offer respect for your life and your home if you lay down your weapons and abide by the law. Report to the governor of the province, the mayor of your municipality, the friendly congressman, the nearest military, navy, or police post, or to any ecclesiastical authority. If you are in a rural area, come with your weapon on one shoulder and with your hands up. If you come forward in an urban zone, leave your weapon hidden in a safe place so that it may be collected immediately after you report it. Do this without losing time, because the operation for total pacification will continue with greater intensity in the area where you find yourself. Then they published photos of people who had turned themselves in, some real, others not. It was clear that the counter-revolutionary wave was growing. Eventually, it would crash against the peaks of the Sierra Maestra, but at the end of April and the beginning of May, it was in full ascent. Our mission, in the first phase of the period we are discussing, was to hold the front occupied by column number four, which extended to the outskirts of the town of Minas del Boicito. Sanchez Mosquera was stationed there, and our struggle consisted of fleeting clashes without either side risking a decisive battle. At night we fired our M26s at them, but they already knew the scant killing power of that weapon and had simply erected a large mesh netting of wire against which the TNT charges exploded in their shells of condensed milk cans, causing only a lot of noise. 
Our camp was situated about two kilometers from Minas in a place called La Utilia, in the house of a local landowner. From there we kept watch on Sanchez Mosquera's movements, curious skirmishes occurring every day. Henchmen would go out at dawn, burning peasant huts, looting all their belongings, and withdrawing before we intervened. At other times they would attack some of our rifle units scattered through the area, making them flee. Any peasant suspected of having an understanding with us was assassinated. I was replaced as commander of column number four by Ramiro Valdez, who had been promoted. I left the area, accompanied by a small group of fighters, to take charge of the school for recruits, where the men crossing from Oriente to Las Villas would receive their training. Furthermore, we had to prepare for what was already imminent, the army's offensive. All the following days of late April and early May were devoted to preparing defensive positions and trying to cart the largest possible quantity of food and medicine into the hills to be able to resist what we saw coming, a large-scale offensive. As a parallel task, we were trying to collect a tax on the sugar plantation owners and cattle ranchers. Remigio Fernandez came up to see us. He was a cattle rancher who offered us the moon and the stars, but he forgot his promises when he reached the plains. The sugar plantation owners also gave us nothing. Later, when our strength was solid, we got even, but we spent the days of the offensive without the necessary elements for our defense. A short time later, Camilo was recalled to better cover our small territory, which contained countless reaches, a radio station, hospitals, munitions depots, and on top of that, an airstrip located among the hills of La Plata where a light plane could land. Fidel maintained the principle that what mattered was not the enemy soldiers, but the number of people we ourselves needed to make a position invulnerable, and that this was what we should focus on. This was our tactic, and why all our forces gathered around the command post to form a compact front. There were not many more than 200 working rifles when the anticipated offensive began on May 25th, in the middle of a meeting Fidel was having with some peasants, discussing the conditions under which the coffee harvest could be carried out, since the army did not allow day laborers to go up to pick the crop. He had called together some 350 peasants who were very interested in resolving their crop problems, Fidel had proposed creating a Sierra Maestra currency to pay the workers, to bring the straw and the bags for packing, to set up producer and consumer cooperatives and a supervisory commission. He also offered the rebel army's help for the harvest. Everything was approved, but just as Fidel himself was about to end the meeting, the machine gun began. The enemy army had clashed with Captain Angel Verdecia's men, and its air force was punishing the area. A decisive meeting. Throughout the entire day of May 3rd, 1958, a meeting took place in the Sierra Maestra in Los Altos de Monpay. This gathering, almost unknown until now, was nonetheless of extraordinary importance in guiding our revolutionary strategy. From the early hours of the day until 2 a.m. the following morning, the meeting analyzed the consequences of the April 9th failure and why that defeat took place. It also took the necessary measures to reorganize the July 26th movement and to overcome weaknesses resulting from the dictatorship's victory. Although I was not a member of the National Committee, I was invited to participate in the meeting at the request of compañeros Faustino Perez and René Ramos Latorre, Daniel, whom I had strongly criticized earlier. In addition to those named, also present were Fidel, Vilma Esprin, Deborah in the Underground, Nico Torres, Luis Butch, 
Celia Sanchez, Marcela Fernandez, Zoilo at that time, Heidi Santa Maria, David Salvador, and Andrew Infante Bruno, who joined us at midday. The gathering was tense, since it had to assess the actions of the Llano Compañeros, who in practice had run the affairs of the July 26 movement until that moment. At the meeting, decisions were taken that confirmed Fidel's moral authority, his indisputable stature, and the conviction among the majority of revolutionaries present that errors of judgment had been committed. The Llano leadership had underestimated the enemy's strength and subjectively overestimated their own, without considering the methods necessary to unleash their forces. But most importantly, the meeting discussed and judged the two conceptions that had been at odds throughout the whole previous stage of the leadership of the war. The guerrilla conception would emerge triumphant from that meeting. Fidel's standing and authority were consolidated, and he was named commander-in-chief of all forces, including the militias, which until then had been under Llano leadership. Fidel was also named general secretary of the July 26 movement. There were many heated debates when the meeting analyzed each person's participation in the events under discussion. But perhaps the most agitated was the discussion with the workers' representatives who were opposed to any participation by the Popular Socialist Party in the organization of the struggle. The analysis of the strike demonstrated that subjectivism and Putsch's conceptions permeated its preparation and execution. The formidable apparatus that the July 26 movement seemed to have in its hands in the form of organized worker cells fell apart the moment the action took place. The adventurous policy of the workers' leaders had failed in the face of an inexorable reality. But they were not the only ones responsible for the defeat. Our opinion was that the larger share of the blame fell on the workers' delegate David Salvador, on Faustino Perez, who was responsible for Havana, and on the leader of the Llano militias, René Ramos Latour. The fault of the first was having held and put into practice his conception of a sectarian strike in which the other revolutionary movements would be forced to follow our lead. Faustino's failure was his lack of perspective in thinking that it would be possible to seize the capital with his militias without closely examining the forces of reaction inside their principal bastion. Daniel was criticized for the same lack of vision, but in reference to the Llano militias, which were organized as parallel troops to ours, but without the same training or the combat morale, and without having gone through the rigorous process of selection through war. The division between the Sierra and the Llano was real. There were certain objective bases for this, given the greater majority achieved in the course of the guerrilla struggle by the Sierra representatives and the lesser majority of the Llano combatants. But there was also an extraordinarily important element, something that might be called an occupational hazard. The Llano Compañeros had to work in their environment, and little by little they became accustomed to viewing the work methods required in those conditions as ideal, and as the only methods possible for the movement. Furthermore, logically enough, from a human standpoint, they began to consider the Llano as having a greater relative importance than the Sierra. After the failures in confronting the dictatorship's forces, there now arose only one capable leadership, that of the Sierra, and, concretely, one sole leader, one commander-in-chief, Fidel Castro. At the end of an exhaustive and often violent discussion, the meeting resolved to relieve Faustino Perez of his duties, replacing him with Delio Gomez Ochoa, and to relieve David Salvador of his duties, replacing him with Nico Torres. 
These last scenes did not amount to a substantive step forward as far as the conception of the struggle was concerned, for when the meeting raised the need for unity of all working-class forces to prepare the next revolutionary general strike, which would be called from the Sierra Maestra, Nico expressed his readiness to work in a disciplined manner with the Stalinists, but said that he did not think this would lead to anything. He referred to the compañeros of the Popular Socialist Party in those terms. The third change regarding Daniel did not lead to a replacement since Fidel directly became commander-in-chief of the Llano militias. The meeting also decided to send Heidi Santa Maria to Miami as a special representative of the July 26th movement, putting her in charge of finances in the exiled community. In the political sphere, the National Committee was to be transferred to the Sierra Maestra, where Fidel would occupy the position of General Secretary. A secretariat of five members was constituted, with one person each in charge of finances, political affairs, and workers' affairs. Everything related to arms shipments or decisions about arms and foreign relations would from then on be on the responsibility of the General Secretary. The three compañeros relieved of their duties were to go to the Sierra Maestra, where David Salvador would hold a post as workers' delegate and Faustino and Daniel would be commanders. The latter was given command of a column that participated actively in the fight against the army's final offensive, which was about to be unleashed. He died at the head of his troops while attacking a retreating enemy column. His revolutionary career earned him a place in the select list of our martyrs. Faustino asked for and obtained authorization to return to Havana and take care of some of the movement's affairs to hand over the leadership and later reintegrate himself into the struggle in the Sierra Maestra. This he did, finishing the war in the José Martí column number one commanded by Fidel Castro. Although history must relate the events just as they occurred, it is necessary to make clear the high opinion we have always had of this compañero who at one moment was our adversary within the movement. Faustino was always considered an irreproachably honest compañero, and he was extremely daring. I was a witness to his fearlessness the time he burned a plane that had brought us weapons from Miami, but that had been discovered by enemy aircraft and damaged. Under machine gun fire, Faustino carried out the operation necessary to prevent it from falling into army hands. Setting it on fire with gasoline pouring out of the bullet holes, his whole history shows his revolutionary quality. At that meeting, other decisions of lesser importance were made, and a whole series of obscure aspects of our reciprocal relations were clarified. We heard a report by Marcelo Fernandez on the organization of the movement in the cities, and he was assigned to prepare another report for the movement cells detailing the results and decisions of the National Committee's meeting. We also heard a report on the organization of the civil resistance, its formation, its work methods, its composition, and how to broaden and strengthen them. Compañero Butch reported on the committee in exile, on Mario Yarena's half-hearted position and his incompatibility with Orisha. It was decided to ratify Orisha as our movement's candidate for president and transfer to him a stipend that, until then, Yarena had been receiving as the movement's only professional cadre in the exiled community. In addition, the meeting decided that if Yarena continued interfering, he would be relieved of his position as president of the committee in exile. There were many problems abroad. In New York, for example, the groups of Arnaldo Barón, Ángel Pérez, Vidal, 
and Pablo Diaz worked separately and at times clashed or interfered with each other. It was resolved that Fidel would send a letter to the emigrant and exile groups recognizing the Committee in Exile of the July 26 movement as the sole official body. The meeting analyzed all the possibilities for the support of the Venezuelan government headed at that time by Wolfgang Lara Zabal. He had promised to support the movement, which in fact he did. The only complaint we might have had with Lara Zabal is that along with the plain load of weapons, he sent us the worthy Manuel Uricia, but actually we ourselves were the ones who had made such a deplorable choice. Other agreements were reached during the meeting. In addition to Heidi Santa Maria, who would go to Miami, Luis Butch was to travel to Caracas, Venezuela, with precise instructions regarding Uricia. Carlos Franqui was ordered to the Sierra Maestra to take charge of the leadership of Radio Rebelde. Contacts would be made by radio via Venezuela using codes composed by Luis Butch that worked until the end of the war. As can be appreciated from the decisions made, this meeting was of capital importance. Various concrete problems of the movement were finally clarified. In the first place, Fidel would lead the war militarily and politically in his dual role as commander-in-chief of all forces and as general secretary of the organization. The Sierra Line would be followed, that of direct armed struggle extending it to other regions and in that way taking control of the country. We did away with various naive illusions of attempted revolutionary general strikes when the situation had not matured sufficiently to bring about that type of explosion and without having laid the adequate groundwork for an event of that magnitude. In addition, the leadership would lie in the Sierra Maestra, which objectively eliminated some practical decision-making problems that had prevented Fidel from exercising the authority he had earned. In fact, this did nothing more than register reality. The political predominance of the Sierra fighters, a consequence of their correct position and interpretation of events. The meeting corroborated the correctness of our earlier doubts when we considered the possibility of a failure of the movement's forces in attempting a revolutionary general strike, if carried out in the manner outlined at a meeting prior to April 9th. Certain very important tasks still remained, above all resisting the approaching offensive, since the army's forces were taking up positions in a ring around the revolution's principal bastion, the command post of column number one, led by Fidel. Afterward, the task would be the invasion of the plains, the seizure of the central provinces, and finally, the destruction of the regime's entire political military apparatus. It would take us seven months to complete those tasks in full. Most urgent was to strengthen the Sierra Maestra front and to ensure that a small bastion could continue speaking to the people of Cuba and sowing the seeds of revolution among them. It was also important to maintain communications abroad. A few days earlier, I had witnessed a radio conversation between Fidel and Justo Carrillo, who represented the Monte Cristi group, that is, a group of aspiring thugs, including representatives of imperialism, such as Carrillo himself and Ramon Barquin. Justo offered the moon and the stars, but asked that Fidel make a declaration supporting the pure military men. Fidel answered that while this was not impossible, it would be difficult for our movement to understand a call of this nature. Our people were falling victim to soldiers, and since they were all lumped together, it was difficult to distinguish the good from the bad. In short, the declaration was not made. Yarena was also spoken with, I seem to recall as well as Uricia. 
An attempt was made to issue a call for unity to try to prevent the breakup of the flimsy grouping of disparate personalities, the Caracas Pact. From Caracas, they were trying to capitalize on the armed movement for their own gain, but they represented our aspirations for international recognition, and we therefore had to be careful. Immediately after the meeting, the participants scattered. It was my task to inspect a whole range of zones, trying to create defensive lines with our small forces to resist the army's push. The really strong resistance would begin in the most mountainous areas from the Caracas Peak, where the small and poorly armed groups of Crescenzo Perez would be located, to the zones of La Potella or La Mesa, where Ramiro Valdez's forces were distributed. This small territory had to be defended. With not much more than 200 functioning rifles, when a few days later Batista's army began its encirclement and annihilation offensive. The Final Offensive and the Battle of Santa Clara The general strike of April 9, 1958, was a resounding defeat that never endangered the regime's stability. Furthermore, after the tragic date, the government was able to transfer troops and gradually place them in Oriente province, spreading its destruction to the Sierra Maestra. More and more, our defense had to be from within the Sierra Maestra, and the government kept increasing the number of regiments it placed in front of our positions until there were 10,000 men. With these forces, it began the May 25th offensive in the town of Las Mercedes, which was our forward position. There, Batista's army gave proof of its ineffectiveness in combat, and we showed our lack of resources, 200 working rifles to fight against 10,000 weapons of all sorts, an enormous disadvantage. Our troops fought bravely for two days with odds of one against ten or fifteen, fighting moreover against mortars, tanks, and the Air Force, until the small group was forced to abandon the town. It was commanded by Captain Angel Verdicia, who one month later would courageously die in battle. The offensive ran its course, and in two and a half months of hard fighting, the enemy lost over one thousand men, counting dead, wounded, prisoners, and deserters. They also left 600 weapons in our hands, including a tank, 12 mortars, 12 tripod machine guns, over 200 submachine guns, and countless automatic weapons. Also, an enormous amount of ammunition and equipment of all sorts, and 450 prisoners who were handed over to the Red Cross when the campaign ended. Batista's army came out of that last offensive in the Sierra Maestra with its spine broken, but it had not yet been defeated. The struggle continued. It was then that the final strategy was established, attacking at three points Santiago de Cuba, which had been under a flexible siege, Las Villas, where I was to go, and Pinar del Rio, at the other end of the island, where Camilo Sinfuegos was to march as commander of column number two, named Antonio Maceo, in memory of the historic invasion by the great leader of 1895, who crossed the length of Cuban territory with epic actions culminating at Mantua. Camilo Sinfuegos was not able to fill the second part of his program, as the exigencies of the war forced him to remain in Las Villas. Once the regiments assaulting the Sierra Maestra had been wiped out, the front had returned to its normal intensity, and our troops had increased their strength and morale. It was decided to begin marching on the central province of Las Villas. My order specified our main strategic task, to systematically cut off communications between both extremes of the island. I was also ordered to establish relations with all political groups that might be operating in the mountains of the region, and I was given broad powers to militarily govern my assigned area.
We were to set off by truck on August 30th, 1958, with these instructions and believing the trip would take four days. Then an unexpected accident disrupted our plans. A pickup truck was arriving that night carrying uniforms and gasoline for the otherwise prepared vehicles. A cargo of arms also arrived by air at an airstrip close to the road. But the plane was sighted just as it landed, even though it was dark, and the airstrip was bombed systematically from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. At that point, we ourselves burned the plane to prevent it from falling into enemy hands or having the bombardment continue by day with even worse results. Enemy troops advanced on the airstrip, intercepting the pickup truck carrying the gasoline and leaving us on foot. So it was that we began the march on August 31st without trucks or horses, hoping to find them after crossing the highway from Manzanillo to Bayamo. In fact, having crossed it, we found the trucks, but also on the first day of September, we encountered a first hurricane that made our roads impassable, except for the central highway, the only paved road in this region of Cuba, forcing us to give up on vehicle transportation. From that moment on, we had to use horses or walk. We were loaded down with ammunition, a bazooka with 40 shells, and everything necessary for a long march and for rapidly setting up camp. Days passed, and it was already becoming difficult, even though we were in the friendly territory of Oriente, crossing overflowing rivers and streams that had become rivers, struggling with difficulty to prevent our ammunition, arms, and shells from getting wet, looking for horses and leaving tired horses behind, avoiding inhabited zones as we moved away from the eastern province. We walked through difficult, flooded terrain, suffering the attacks of mosquito swarms that made periods of rest unbearable eating little and poorly, drinking water from swampy rivers or simply from swamps. Each day of travel became longer and truly horrible. A week after leaving camp, by the time we crossed the Jobabo River, which marks the border between Oriente and Camagüey provinces, our forces were greatly weakened. This river, like all the previous ones and those we would cross later, was flooded. We were also feeling the effects of the lack of footwear among our troops, many of whom were walking barefoot through the mud of southern Camagüey. On the night of September 9th, as we were approaching a place known as La Federal, our forward guard fell into an enemy ambush, and two valuable compañeros were killed. But the most lamentable consequence was being noticed by the enemy forces, who from then on gave us no respite. After a brief clash, the small garrison there surrendered, and we took four prisoners. Now we had to march very carefully, since the Air Force knew our approximate course. One or two days later, we reached a place known as Laguna Grande, together with Camilo's forces, much better equipped than ours. The area stands out for its extraordinary number of mosquitoes, which made it absolutely impossible for us to rest without a mosquito net, and not all of us had one. These were days of tiring marches through desolate expanses of only water and mud, we were hungry, thirsty, and could hardly advance because our legs felt like lead and the weapons were tremendously heavy. We continued advancing with the better horses Camilo had left us when his column took their trucks, but we had to give them up near the Macareño sugar mill. The guides they were supposed to send us did not arrive, and we set off on the adventure as we were. Our forward guard clashed with an enemy outpost in a place called Cuatro Compañeros, and the exhausting battle began. It was daybreak and with great effort we managed to gather a large part of our troop in the largest woods in the area, but the army was advancing along its edges and we had to fight hard to make it possible for some of our men who had fallen behind to cross some railroad tracks into the woods. 
The Air Force then cited us and the B-26s, the C-47s, the big C-3 reconnaissance planes, and the light planes began bombing an area no more than 200 meters wide. Finally, we withdrew, leaving one man killed by a bomb and carrying several wounded, including Captain Silva, who went through the rest of the invasion with a broken shoulder. The picture the following day was less desolate, since many of those who had fallen behind showed up, and we managed to gather the whole troop, minus the ten men who were to join Camilo's column, and with them get to the northern front of Las Villas province in Yaguaje. Despite the difficulties, we were never without the encouragement of the peasants. We always found someone who would serve as a guide, or who would give us the food without which we could not go on. Naturally, it was not the unanimous support of the whole people we had enjoyed in Oriente, but there was always someone who helped us. At times we were reported to the enemy as soon as we crossed the farm, but that was not because peasants were acting directly against us. Rather, their living conditions made these people slaves of the landowners, and fearful of losing their daily subsistence, they would report to their master that we had passed through the region. The latter would take charge of graciously informing the military authorities. One afternoon, we were listening on our field radio to a report by General Francisco Tabarnia Dolce, who, with the typical arrogance of a thug, was announcing that Che Guevara's hordes had been destroyed. He was giving extensive details about the dead, the wounded, the names, and all sorts of things, based on items taken from our backpacks after that disastrous encounter with the enemy a few days earlier. All this was mixed in with false information cooked up by the Army's high command. News of our passing produced great merriment among our troops, but pessimism was getting hold of them little by little. Hunger and thirst, exhaustion, feeling impotent against the enemy forces closing in on us, and more than anything, the terrible foot disease the peasants called Masamora, which turned each step our soldiers took into an intolerable torment, had made us an army of shadows. It was very difficult to advance. Our troops' physical condition worsened day by day, and the meals, today yes, tomorrow no, the next day maybe, in no way helped alleviate the misery we were suffering. We spent the hardest days besieged in the vicinity of Baraguay, sugar mill, and pestilent swamps, without a drop of drinking water, attacked constantly by the Air Force, not a single horse to carry the weakest across barren marshes, our shoes totally destroyed by the muddy seawater, and plants injuring our bare feet. Our situation was really disastrous when, with difficulty, we broke out of the encirclement at Baragua and reached the famous Jucaro Moran Trail, an historically evocative place, the scene of bloody fighting between patriots and Spaniards during the War of Independence. We did not have time to recover even a little when a new downpour, bad weather, enemy attacks, or reports of their presence forced us to march on. The troop was increasingly tired and disheartened. When the situation was most tense, however, when insults, pleas, and sharp remarks were the only way to get the weary men to advance, a sight far away in the distance lit up their faces and instilled a new spirit in the guerrillas. The sight was a blue streak to the west, the blue streak of the Las Villas mountain ranges, seen for the first time by our men. From that moment on, the same or similar hardships became more bearable and everything seemed easier. We slipped through the last encirclement by swimming across the Jucaro River, which divides the provinces of Camagüey and Las Villas, and it already seemed that a new light was illuminating us. Two days later, we were in the heart of the Trinidad Sancti Spiritus mountain range, safe, ready to begin the next stage of the war. 
We rested for another two days. We had to prepare ourselves to prevent the election scheduled for November 3rd. We had reached the mountains of Las Villas on October 16th. Time was short and the task was enormous. Camilo was doing his part in the north, sowing fear among the dictatorship's men. Our task, upon arriving for the first time in the Escombre Mountains, was clearly defined. We had to harass the dictatorship's military apparatus, above all its communications, and, as an immediate goal, we had to prevent the elections from taking place. But this work was made difficult because time was scarce and because of the disunity among the revolutionary forces, which translated into internal quarrels that cost us dearly, including human lives. We were supposed to attack the neighboring towns to prevent the elections, and plans were elaborated to do this simultaneously in the cities of Camaguan, Formento, and Sancti Spiritus, in the rich plains of the center of the island. Meanwhile, the small garrison at Guinea del Miranda in the mountains surrendered. Later, the Banao garrison was attacked with few results. The days prior to November 3rd, the date of the elections, were extraordinarily busy. Our columns were mobilized everywhere, almost totally preventing voters in those areas from going to the polls. Camilo Sanfuego's troops in the northern part of the province paralyzed the electoral force. Basically, from the transport of Batista soldiers to commercial traffic, everything stood still. There was practically no voting in Oriente. The percentage was a little higher in Camagüey, and in the western region, in spite of everything, mass abstention was evident. This abstention was achieved spontaneously in Las Villas, as there had not been time to synchronize the passive resistance of the masses with the activity of the guerrillas. In Oriente, successive battles were taking place on the first and second fronts, as well as on the third with the Antonio Guerras, column number nine, relentlessly exerting pressure on Santiago de Cuba, the provincial capital. Except for municipal seats, the government had nothing left in Oriente. The situation was also becoming very serious in Las Villas, with intensified attacks on communications. On arrival, we completely changed the system of struggle in the cities. We rapidly sent the best militia members from the cities to the training camps to receive instruction and sabotage, which proved effective in urban areas. During the months of November and December 1958, we gradually closed the highways. Captain Silva totally blocked the highway from Trinidad to Sancti Spiritus, and the island's central highway was seriously damaged when the bridge across the Tuniku River was dynamited. The central railroad was blocked at several points. Moreover, the southern route had been cut by the second front and the northern route had been closed by Camilo Sinfuegos' troops. The island was divided into two parts. The region most in upheaval, Oriente, received aid from the government only by air and sea, and this became increasingly insecure. The symptoms of the enemy's disintegration were increasing. An extremely intense campaign for revolutionary unity had to be carried out in the Escambre Mountains, because already operating there was a group led by Commander Eloy Guiteros Manoyo, Second National Front of the Escombre, another of the revolutionary directorate led by Commanders Faor, Chomón, and Rolando Cubela, another smaller one of the authentic organization, another of the popular Socialist Party, commanded by Felix Torres and us. In other words, there were five different organizations operating under different commands and in the same province. After laborious talks I had to have with the respective leaders, we reached a series of agreements and it was possible to go on to form a more or less common front. 
From December 16th onward, the systematic cutting off of bridges and all kinds of communications had made it very difficult for the dictatorship to defend its forward positions and even those on the central highway. Early that day, the bridge across the Falcon River on the central highway was destroyed, and communications between Havana and the cities to the east of Santa Clara, the capital of Las Villas province, were virtually cut off. Also, a number of towns, the southernmost being Formento, was besieged and attacked by our forces. The commander of the city defended his position more or less effectively for several days. Despite the Air Force's punishment of our rebel army, the dictatorship's demoralized troops would not advance overland to support their comrades. Realizing that resistance was useless, they surrendered, and more than 100 rifles joined the forces of freedom. Without giving the enemy any respite, we decided to paralyze the central highway immediately, and on December 21st, we simultaneously attacked Cabogan and Guayos, both on the central highway. The latter surrendered in a few hours, and during the following day so did Cabogan with its 90 soldiers. Cabogan once again proved the dictatorship's ineffectiveness, as it never sent infantry units to reinforce those under siege. In the northern regions of Las Villas, Camilo Sinfuegos was attacking several towns, which he was subduing at the same time as he was laying siege to Yagahuay, the last bastion of the dictatorship's troops. Yagahuay resisted for eleven days, immobilizing the revolutionary troops in the region. At the same time, our troops were already advancing along the central highway toward Santa Clara, the provincial capital. After Cuabagán had fallen, we set out in active collaboration with the forces of the Revolutionary Directorate to attack Placetas, which surrendered after only one day of struggle. After taking Placetas, we liberated in rapid succession Remedios and Quebarien on the northern coast, the latter an important port. The picture was becoming gloomy for the dictatorship because in addition to continuous victory scored in Oriente, the second national front of the Escombre was defeating small garrisons and Camilo Sinfuegos controlled the north. When the enemy withdrew from Camajuani without offering resistance, we were ready to launch the definitive attack on the capital of Las Villas province. Santa Clara is the hub of the island's central plain with 150,000 inhabitants. It is the center of the railroad system and all communications in the country. It is surrounded by small bare hills which were previously occupied by the troops of the dictatorship. At the time of the attack, our forces had considerably increased our weaponry, as we had taken several positions and some heavy weapons which were lacking ammunition. We had a bazooka without shells, and we had to fight against some ten tanks. We also knew that for us to fight most effectively, we had to reach the city's populous neighborhoods where a tank is much less efficient. While well, the troops of the Revolutionary Directorate were taking the rural guards number 31 garrison, we set about besieging almost all of Santa Clara's fortified positions. Fundamentally, however, our fight was focused against the guards of the armored train stationed at the entrance of the Camaljuani Road. The army, which was well equipped, tenaciously defended these positions. On December 29th, we began the struggle. At first, the university served as our operations base. Later, we established our headquarters closer to the city's downtown area. Our men were fighting against troops supported by armored units and were forcing them to flee, although many paid for their boldness with their lives. The dead and wounded began to fill the improvised cemeteries and hospitals. 
The hills of Capiro continued to resist, and we continued fighting there the whole day of December 30th, at the same time gradually taking different points in the city. By then, communications between the center of Santa Clara and the armored train had been cut off. Those in the train, seeing they were surrounded on the hills of Capiro, tried to escape by rail with all their magnificent cargo. Arriving at the spur we had already destroyed previously, the locomotive and some carriages were derailed. A very interesting battle began in which our Molotov cocktails forced the men out of the armored trains. Assaulted by men who threw bottles of burning gasoline, the train became, thanks to its armored plating, a veritable oven for the soldiers. In a few hours, the whole lot surrendered with their 22 carriages, their anti-aircraft guns, their machine guns, and their fabulous quantity of ammunition, fabulous, of course, compared with our meager supply. We had been able to take the power station and the city's whole northwest side. We went on the air to announce that Santa Clara was almost in the hands of the revolution. In the announcement, which I made as commander-in-chief of the armed forces in Las Villas, I remember I had the sorrow of informing the Cuban people of the death of Captain Roberto Rodriguez, Roquerito, small in stature and years, and leader of the suicide squad, who had played with death a thousand and one times, fighting for freedom. The suicide squad was an example of revolutionary morale, and only selected volunteers joined it. But whenever a man died, and that happened in every battle, and when the new aspirant was named, those not chosen would be grief-stricken and even cry. Strange to see those seasoned, noble figures showing their youth in their tears of despair, because they did not have the honor of being in the front line of combat and death. The police station fell next, surrendering the tanks that defended it, and in rapid succession number 31 garrison surrendered to Commander Cuvela, while the jail, the courthouse, the provincial government palace, and the Grand Hotel, where snipers on the tenth floor had kept up fire almost until the end of combat, surrendered to our forces. At that moment, only the Ondicio Vidal garrison, the largest fortress in central Cuba, had not surrendered. But by January 1st, 1959, there were already growing signs of weakness among the forces defending it. That morning we sent Captains Antonio Núñez Jiménez and Alfonso Rodríguez de la Vega to negotiate the surrender of the garrison. Reports were contradictory and extraordinary. Batista had fled that day, leaving the high command of the armed forces in complete disarray. Our two delegates established radio contact with General Ulogio Cantillo, telling him of the offer of surrender but he indicated he could not accept that because it constituted an ultimatum and because he had taken over command of the army in accordance with precise instructions from the leader, Fidel Castro. We contacted Fidel immediately, telling him the news, but giving our opinion of Cantillo's treacherous attitude, an opinion with which he absolutely agreed. In those decisive hours, Cantillo let all the main figures in Batista's government escape. His attitude was even more saddening considering he was an officer who had contacted us. We had trusted him as a military man of honor. The results that followed are known to everyone. Castro's refusal to recognize Cantillo's authority, Fidel's order to march on the city of Havana, Colonel Barquin seizing command of the army after leaving the Isle of Pines prison, the seizure of Camp Colombia by Camilo Sinfuegos and of La Cabana Fortress by our column number eight, and the final installation within a few days of Fidel Castro as Prime Minister of the Provisional Government. All this belongs to the country's present political history. 
We are now in a position in which we are much more than the simple instruments of one nation. We are now the hope of the unredeemed Americas. All eyes, those of the great oppressors and those of the hopeful, are firmly on us. In great measure, the development of the popular movements in Latin America depends on the future stance that we take, on our capacity to resolve so many problems, and every step we take is being observed by the ever-watchful eyes of the big creditor and by the optimistic eyes of our brothers and sisters in Latin America. With our feet planted firmly on the ground, we're beginning to labor and produce our first revolutionary works. We confront the first difficulties. But what is Cuba's main problem, if not the same as all of Latin America, the same even as enormous Brazil with its millions of square kilometers and with its land of marbles that is a whole continent, the one-crop economy? In Cuba, we are slaves to sugar cane, the umbilical cord that binds us to the large northern market. We must diversify our agricultural production, stimulate industry, and ensure that our minerals and agricultural products and, in the near future, our industrial production go to the markets that are best suited for us and by our own methods of transportation. The government's first big battle will be the agrarian reform, which will be audacious but flexible. It will destroy the large estates in Cuba, although not Cuba's means of production. It will be a battle that will absorb a great part of the strength of the people and the government during the coming years. The land will be given free to the peasant. Land owners who prove that they came by their holdings honestly will be compensated with long-term bonds, but the peasantry will also be given technical assistance. There will be guaranteed markets for the products of the soil, and production will be channeled with a broad national sense of development in conjunction with the great battle for agrarian reform, so that within a short time the infant Cuban industries can compete with the monstrous ones of the countries where capitalism has reached its highest level of development. Simultaneously, with the creation of the new domestic market that agrarian reform will bring about, and the distribution of new products to satisfy a growing market, there will arise the need to export some products and to have the adequate instruments to take them to this or that part of the world. That instrument will be a merchant fleet which the already approved maritime development law envisages. With these elementary weapons, we Cubans will begin the struggle for our territory's total freedom. We all know it will not be easy, but we are all aware of the enormous historic responsibility of the July 26 movement, of the Cuban Revolution, of the nation in general, to be an example for all the peoples of Latin America, whom we must not disappoint. Our friends of the indomitable continent can be sure that if need be, we will struggle no matter what the economic consequences of our action may be. And if the fight is taken further still, we shall struggle to the last drop of our rebel blood to make this land a sovereign republic. With the true attributes of a nation that is happy, democratic, and fraternal with its brothers and sisters of Latin America. A Sin of the Revolution Revolutions, radical and accelerated social transformations, are made in specific circumstances. They rarely, if ever, emerge fully ripe, and not all their details can be scientifically foreseen. They are made from passion, from the improvisation of human beings in their struggle for social change, and they are never perfect. Our revolution was no exception. It committed errors, and some of these cost us dearly. Today, evidence of another such error has been shown to us, 
that although it has had no repercussions, still demonstrates the truth of the popular sayings, birds of a feather flock together, and a leopard never changes his spots. When the troops of the invading column reached the foothills of the Escambray, after forty-five days on the march, in great pain, their feet bloodied and lacerated by fungal disease, continuing on faith alone, they were greeted by an unusual letter. It was signed by Commander Carrera, and it stated that the column of the rebel army, under my command, was prohibited from entering the Escombray without a clear explanation of our intentions. Before ascending, I was to stop marching and explain myself. Stop on the open plains in the conditions we found ourselves in, under the constant threat of enemy encirclement, which we could only escape through rapid movement. This was the essence of the long, insolent letter. We continued ahead, perplexed, sorry because we could not wait for those who described themselves as our comrades in struggle, but determined to resolve any problems and carry out the express orders of Commander-in-Chief Fidel Castro, who had clearly ordered us to work for the unity of all combatants. We reached the Escambre and made camp near the Obispo Peak, visible from Sancti Spiritus with a cross on its summit. We were able to establish our first camp there and immediately look for the house where we were supposed to find the guerrilla's most precious item, shoes. There were no shoes. They had been taken by the forces of the Second National Front of the Escombre. Despite the fact they had been obtained by the July 26 movement, a storm was brewing. Nevertheless, we succeeded in maintaining our calm and talked with a captain who later informed us he had murdered four combatants who wished to abandon the second front and join the revolutionary ranks of the July 26 movement. We had a discussion with Commander Carrera, unfriendly but not heated. He had already drunk half a bottle of liquor, about half his daily quota. He was not as gross and aggressive in person as was his missive a few days earlier, but we saw in him an enemy. Later we met Commander Peña, famous in the region for rustling the peasants' cattle. He emphatically prohibited us from attacking Guinea de Miranda because the village belonged to his zone. When we argued that the region belonged to everyone, that it was necessary to fight, and that we had more and better weapons and more experience, he simply said that our bazooka was matched by 200 shotguns, and that 200 shotguns had the same effect as a bazooka. End of discussion. Guinea del Miranda was to be taken by the Second Front, and we could not attack it. Naturally, we paid no attention, but we knew we faced dangerous allies. After many trials and tribulations too long to relate, where our patience was tested infinitely, and where, according to the just critique of Compañero Fidel, we put up with more than we should have, we reached a truce. They permitted us to make the agrarian reform in the entire area belonging to the Second National Front of the Escambre, as long as we permitted them to collect taxes. Collect taxes, that was their watchword. The story is a long one. In a bloody and unrelenting struggle, we occupied the principal cities of the nation, counting on the support of fine allies in the revolutionary directorate, whose members, although fewer and with less experience, did everything possible to assist in our common success. On January 1st, the revolutionary command demanded that all troops be placed under my command in Santa Clara. The second national front of the Escambre, through the mouth of its leader, Guiteras Menoyo, immediately placed itself at my orders. No problem whatsoever. 
We then ordered them to wait for us because we had to arrange some administrative tasks in the first big city we had conquered. It was difficult to control things during those days, and we soon learned that the second front, following behind Camilo Sinfuegos, had entered Havana heroically. We thought it might be some maneuver to try to gain strength, to occupy some position, to create a provocation. We already knew them, but with each day we got to know them better. They did, in fact, occupy the most important strategic positions from their point of view. A few days later, the first bill arrived from the Hotel Capri, signed by Fietas. It was for $15,000 in food and drink for a small number of beneficiaries. When it came time to assign ranks, almost 100 captains and a good number of commanders aspired to comfortable state jobs, in addition to a huge select group of men put forward by the inseparable Menoyo and Flaitas, who aspired to a whole range of jobs in the state apparatus. These were not particularly well-paying positions, but they had one characteristic. They had all been sources of graft during the pre-revolutionary regime. Housing inspectors, tax collectors, all the places where money changed hands and passed through avid fingers, these posts were the objects of their desire. This was a part of the rebel army with which we had to coexist. From the very first days, serious disagreements arose that sometimes culminated in violent words but our apparent revolutionary good sense always prevailed and we gave way for the sake of unity. We maintained our principles, we did not permit theft, and we did not give out key positions to those we knew to be potential traitors, but neither did we eliminate them. We made allowances, always on behalf of some vague and poorly understood idea of unity. This was a sin of the revolution. The same sin led us to pay succulent salaries to people like Barquin, Felipe Pasos, Tete Casuso, and so many other domestic and foreign freeloaders the revolution kept to avoid conflict, trying to buy their silence with understanding, a salary that was already being parasitical from a government they were waiting to betray. But the enemy has more money and more means of bribery than the people do. When all is said and done, what could we offer a Flyetes or Manoyo except a position of work and sacrifice? They who lived off the tales of a struggle in which they did nothing were deceiving people looking for jobs, always trying to get closer to where money was ripe for the picking, rabble-rousing, and all the cabinet ministries. All pure revolutionaries scorned them, yet we allowed them to function, greeting our teeth. They were an insult to our revolutionary conscience. Their presence constantly revealed to us our sin, the sin of flexibility in the face of a lack of revolutionary spirit, in the face of potential traitors, in the face of weakness of spirit, cowardice, thievery, cattle rustling. Our conscience has now been cleared, because together they have all left, sent by God in little boats to Miami. Thank you, cattle rustlers of the Second Front. Thank you for relieving us of the execrable presence of self-appointed commanders, ridiculous captains, heroes unfamiliar with the rigors of battles, but not the easy seizure of peasant homes. Thank you for this lesson you have given us, for demonstrating that consciousness cannot be bought with revolutionary generosity, that we must be strict and demanding with everyone. Thank you for showing us the need to be inflexible in the face of errors, weakness, and bad faith and for allowing us to rise up, denounce, and punish, wherever it occurs, any vice that goes against the high ideals of the revolution. 
Let the example of the second front, the example of our good, dear friend, the ex-thief, Prio, call us back to reality. Let us not be afraid to call a thief a thief, because we ourselves, honoring what we loosely call revolutionary tactics, refer to the thief as ex-president during the days when the ex-president did not refer to us as despicable communists, as he does now, but as saviors of Cuba. A thief is a thief, and he'll die a thief, at least the high-level ones, not the desperate person who in certain countries must steal a crust of bread so their children can eat. The other one, who robs to get himself women, drugs, or drink, or to satisfy the base instincts that drive him, he'll be a thief his whole life. Now they are together over there, those who assaulted our conscience like Felipe Passos, who sold his honesty as if it were a gold coin to put at the disposal of serious institutions. People like Rufo Lopez and Justo Carrillo, who took a baby step to accommodate themselves to the situation in order to get a little further. People like José Miró Cardona, eternal optimists, the incurable thieves, complicit in murders against the people, the cattle rustlers, whose great deeds were carried out against the masses of peasants they murdered in the Escambray, sowing more terror than Batista's army itself. They are part of our conscience. They remind us of our sin, a sin of the revolution that must not be repeated, a lesson we must learn. Revolutionary conduct is a mirror of revolutionary faith. When someone who calls himself a revolutionary does not behave as such, he is no more than a charlatan. Let them all embrace one another, the Venturas and Tony Varonas, who fight so much among themselves, the Prios and Batistas, the Quiteras Manoyos and Sanchos Mosqueras, killers who murder to satisfy immediate cravings and who do so in the name of freedom. Thieves and traitors and honesty, opportunists of all stripes, presidential candidates, a pretty package. How much you have taught us. Thank you. Lydia and Clodimira I met Lydia some six months after we began our revolutionary activities. I was new in the role of commander of column number four, and in search of provisions, we went down for a lightning raid on the little village of San Pablo de Yao near Bayamo in the foothills of the Sierra Maestra. One of the first houses in the village belonged to a family of bakers. Lydia, a woman of some forty-five years, was one of the owners of the bakery, whose only son had been a member of our column. From the first, she threw herself into revolutionary work enthusiastically and with exemplary devotion. When I call her name to mind, I feel more than just affectionate appreciation for this irreproachable revolutionary, for she showed a particular devotion to me and preferred working under my orders, regardless of the front I might be assigned to. Innumerable were the occasions Lydia acted as special messenger, for me or for the movement. She carried to Santiago and to Havana the most compromising documents, all of our columns, communiques, and issues of our newspaper, El Cubano Libre. To us, she brought the paper, medicines, what we needed, whenever we needed it. Her limitless audacity was such that mail messengers avoided her company. I will always remember the opinion, somewhere between admiration and resentment, of one of them who told me, That woman has more than Antonio Maceo, but she's going to get us all killed. The things she does are crazy. This is no time for games. Lydia, however, went on crossing the enemy lines again and again. I was transferred to the zone of Minas del Frio in Las Vegas, the Hibacoa, and she followed. 
This meant leaving the auxiliary camp that she had commanded gallantly and slightly tyrannically for some time, causing a certain resentment among the Cuban men since they were not accustomed to taking orders from a woman. Her camp at Las Cuevas between Yao and Bayamo was the revolution's most forward position. We wanted to remove her from that command because it was too dangerous a base. After the enemy had located it, our men often had to leave it under fire. I tried to have Lydia transferred from there once and for all, but I succeeded only when she followed me to the new front. Lydia knew how fond I was of puppies, and she was always promising to bring one from Havana without ever doing so. During the days of the Great Army Offensive, Lydia carried out her mission to the letter. She came and went from the Sierra Maestra, bringing and taking highly important documents, establishing our connection with the outside world. She was accompanied by another fighter of the same caliber I know only by name, a name known and revered by the entire rebel army, Clodimira. Lydia and Clodimira had already become inseparable comrades in danger. They came and went, always together by each other's side. I had asked Lydia to contact me as soon as I arrived from Las Villas, after the invasion, since she was to be our principal means of communication with Havana and with the general staff in the Sierra Maestra. I arrived and soon found her letter in which she announced she had a puppy ready to give me and that she would bring it on her next trip. This was the trip Lydia and Clodomira never took. Soon after I learned that the incapacity of a man, a hundred times their inferior as a fighter, as a revolutionary, as a human being, had resulted in Lydia and Clodomira being located. Our compañeras defended themselves to the death. Lydia was wounded when she was captured. Lydia's and Clodimira's bodies have disappeared. They are sleeping their last sleep, together no doubt, as they were when they fought during the last days of the great battle for freedom. Someday, maybe, their remains will be found, perhaps in some lonely field in the enormous cemetery the island became. But within the rebel army, among those who fought and made sacrifices in those anguished days, the memory will live forever of the women who, by the risks they took daily, made communication with the rest of the island possible. Among all of us, for us on the first front, and for me personally, Lydia occupies a favored place. This is why I offer these words of remembrance and homage to her today. Like a modest flower laid on the vast grave, this once joyful island became. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. If this once joyful island became. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.